Hello, everybody, and welcome to All In. My name is Sub Eric, Grandmaster of the Lin Kuei. And I am Ace Attorney Seth of Justice. Man, Eric, we knew June was going to be so busy with all these shows and presentations and announcements. It has been absolutely nuts to keep up with. I, I just wish I had even a little more time for literally anything. I haven't even been able to pick out a Father's Day gift yet. <laughs> I know exactly how you feel, buddy. So I took a little inspiration after the Ubisoft Forward and picked up this, the Dagger of Time. The Dagger of Time as a Father's Day gift? Eric, you know we're counting down the top five fathers in Nintendo history you're glad you didn't have, right? The, the bad dads. I don't know if giving one of them as a magical dagger would be a good idea. No, 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 no. The Dagger of Time is legendary for its time manipulation abilities. It can actually take you back to a previous moment in time. I thought it would be a perfect way for us to deal with just everything coming out of this crazy month. Uh, that does seem like a, a good idea. I, I do like myself some time manipulation. I mean, when I first heard you talk about that, I figured you got it so we could go back to before we played Dordonia, so we could experience it again for the first time. That game is so, so special, and I can't wait to talk about it today in our indie showcase. Man, I can't either, but... But honestly, it just made sense for me to go back into the world of Prince of Persia and pick it up anyway. With the prince going back to his 2D roots next year, and with this being the 20th anniversary of his iconic first reboot, I mean, we just had to do an all-in retrospective this week on the all-time GameCube classic, The Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. I mean, th that being said, I don't know if it could take you all the way back to before we played Dordonia, but there, I mean, there's probably a little bit of juice in there for something. A little, little juice in there for something? Well, tell you what, let me try. Uh, be careful. It's a very, it's a very delicate instrument. Uh, what, what just happened? Uh, I, I don't, uh, well, the, da the dagger's gone. I don't know what happened, though. We just got a pile of sand in our hands now, but... Uh, this is why we can't have nice things. Yeah, maybe we should just get the show started, guys. Uh, it's time to go all in. That's right, everybody. We are here in the present, bringing you another episode of All In a Nintendo Podcast, the weekly Nintendo variety show, reaching every week, no shells left unturned, no point is left unearned. We are happy to be here. Got a fun show lined up for you this week. Got a mm -hmm. fun uh, top five for Father's Day, kind of closing the loop on our uh, on our Mother's Day top five we did earlier this year. We got a great indie showcase on Dordonia, a game we can't wait to tell you about. And we're doing, of course, a big old retrospective of Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. So we got a good one lined up, folks. Uh, but Eric, before we get into any of that, you know what we have to do first? We absolutely have to thank the massive, massive legends 
that help put us on each and every week that help bring we're like pbs brought to you by viewers like you <laughs> by viewers like you by patrons like you at patreon.com slash all in podcasts huge thanks to the friends and supporters who uh who toss a few bones our way over there especially um you know, got to send a, a big thank you and shout out to brand new patron at the one up tier Nintendo poetry, a brand new patron joining in at the one up tier. Big thank you. Sent me a very sweet message also uh, that I won't read here. We'll keep that private, but sent a very kind message uh, along with their, their new patronage jumping in at the one up tier. Thank you very much. Nintendo poetry shout outs to you. Thank you um, so much. I'm going to improvise a haiku in your honor. Oh, God. Okay. Let's hear it. Go for it. Nintendo poet. Oh, how we respect you so. Let's go all in, yo. <laughs> God. <laughs> I, I I accept it. I accept it. There you go, Nintendo poetry. A, a little Nintendo poetry, <laughs> Nintendo IQ. Off, I had to count off the syllables on my The hand. syllables, yeah. <laughs> what is it? What is it? Five, seven, five? Five, seven, it? five, yeah. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Anyways. He's like, unsubscribe. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, thank you, Nintendo Poetry, for, for jumping into the to the one-up tier. But let's thank our Golden Banana and Triforce tier supporters, starting with our Golden Banana tier. Rob Yapel, Third Strongest Mole, Sean, Shano, Baggins, Ashton, Tim A, a.k.a. Neoprime33, a.k.a. Nintendo Dad Number 4, Matt, Shy Guy City Murray, Phelan Ward, Bill Tucker, Marcus O'Neill, Liam D, Bowser, Gamer Jason and Andrew Wilkins. Thanks so much to our Golden Banana Bunch. But moving into our Triforce tier. <laughs> we need to thank Josh Vaughn, the godfather of Tingle Love Tuesday. John Datfast Cummins of the Retro Logic Podcast, as well as the On Topic Retro Podcast. The Globe Trotting Jet Setting Nintendo Hub and Sparky of the Nintendo Hub right here on YouTube. Uh, Adam Caparello of the Retro Groove Podcast, as well as the Octo Rock 1982 YouTube channel. Uh, Shy Guy, the other half of our Shy Guy Mod Squad. Thank you, Shy Guy. Tanyalina Hosa, Dan and Luma, Solo Something, and the legend himself. The man so perfect you could never remake, reboot, or re-release him. The one, the original, Uncle Randy. They got did it in one with did Uncle it in Randy. One. They, Un they got it. The untouchable. He's like Back to the Future of the Princess Bride. You could never remake that. That's right. Often duplicated, or wait, was it? Often imitated, never replicated? Is yeah, that a phrase? often imitated, yeah. never duplicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. We got it. Yeah, Uncle Randy... We appreciate you. Love you very much, Uncle Randy. Uh, also, you can leave us five-star reviews. Those are super appreciated as well that are entirely for free. Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Audible. You can drop those words for us. I'll read them here at the beginning of the show if you do that. And then on Spotify, you can leave us a five-star rating as well. Those are very, very much appreciated and very, very free. Thanks to everybody who's done that in the past. And thank you to you, you listening right now, who will do it in the future. I can guarantee it. I can see into the future and I can guarantee that you're about to drop those words and leave that review. It's time manipulation <laughs> powers. Just, just. All over again. Oh my gosh. Well, Eric, what's been going on in your world this week, my friend? Uh, well, <laughs> so uh, obviously I'm still ridiculously excited uh, for what's going on in the FGC right now. We got, you know, Street Fighter just dropped. Insanely, we didn't get a new 
character trailer. We didn't get a character trailer for Rashid at any point in the past week. That blew my mind, but still excited for everything going on in the FGC. Of course, still ridiculously hype for the forthcoming Mortal Kombat 1. So much so that it finally happened, Seth. I finally broke down and got Mortal Kombat 11 Ultimate on my Nintendo Switch, due in large part to the fact that uh, I is the is the discount still going on right now? Uh, I'm not sure. It's not. Sh- it might be. I don't know. But uh, there, it might be going on right now still. But Mortal Kombat 11 Ultimate was, or maybe still is, on like an 85 percent discount. The entire package, content complete, was nine bucks. And I finally just said, "It, you know what? I've got to do it. I put so... The, one of the biggest barriers for me was just how much time I put into it on the Xbox One and how much stuff I unlocked. Because there are, like... If you've never played MK11, there is a app... There's an absolutely redonkulous amount of stuff to unlock in that game from you know, mid-fight taunts to actual finishing moves and skins and gear pieces and, you know, customizable, you know, player icon stuff and just all kinds of stuff, like literally thousands of things to unlock in that game. Uh, And just knowing that I was going to have to restart from scratch was always kind of a big barrier of entry to me for, for picking it up on the Nintendo Switch. But you know, even I couldn't say no to to a nine dollar price tag, and of course, as excited as I am for Mortal Kombat One, and as much as badly as I've been needing to play a Mortal Kombat game over the past month, especially hearing all the news and the announcements and the gameplay and everything like that, I finally just had to break down. So it should come as no surprise that I have spent a large portion of my past week back in Outworld taking heads, taking names, and just generally spreading a lot of blood, gore, and chaos around in my wake. And I've been having an absolute blast doing it. Now, I will say that does give me the benefit of being able to speak uh, from a firsthand perspective on the Nintendo Switch version of the game. Um, And something actually that you and I now share, Seth. Uh, but yeah, well, yeah, I picked it up too, just for that, for that price. You just, you can't really, and I did look it up by the way, while you're talking, it's active until the 19th. You have until the 19th to, uh, to get yourself a 899 version of the ultimate edition, which is the everything. It's the stupid edition. It's got everything. Yeah. Minus a couple costume packs. Uh, it is, it is content complete. Uh, it is, it is also content complete compared to the, the, the other versions of the game, the Nintendo Switch version, while suffering some very noticeable drawbacks, is actually content complete. Everything they released on the other consoles, they released on the Nintendo Switch version as well. All the characters, all three character packs. So you've got RoboCop and Terminator and Rambo in addition to the over 30 Mortal Kombat characters themselves. You've got all the finishing moves and extra stuff that they've added. The extra story mode, the friendships, stage fatalities, the extra stages, and all of that stuff is in... It's an absolutely ridiculous amount. Just just through single player. Admittedly, I uh, I haven't gotten online with the game yet because just the single player content alone could keep you occupied for actually hundreds of hours. Um, 
So, but I've, I've been doing so, so much of that and just having an absolute blast. But I will say, if you are thinking about picking up the Switch version, if you have the ability to, this may sound obvious, but if you have the ability to pick it up for a good price on another console, it is hard to, at an equal price, it is hard to recommend the Nintendo Switch version over the other versions. It is easily the worst version of the game. Uh, the The visuals do take a very noticeable hit. It is kind of bad when you put it up, especially put it up uh, next to the even the Xbox One or the, the PlayStation 4 version, even those versions. It looks kind of, especially the, the hair looks, frankly, no, the, like, awful. the hair looks it's so bad. bad. <laughs> and admittedly, the game has crashed on me a couple times. Although that being said, mm. that's not exclusive to the Nintendo Switch version. That did admittedly happen quite a lot to me on the Xbox One. So that's not just a Nintendo thing. Uh, and occasionally there was some slowdown. But I've got to say, like by and large, I'm still really, really enjoying it. Once you get into the gameplay, like in motion, it's really hard to tell. Sure, when you right. stop on when you stop and do close-ups, a lot of the visuals and a lot of the uh, the considerations they had to make to bring it to the switch are pretty obvious. But moment to moment, once you get into a fight, I mean, it is Mortal Kombat 11. It is a perfectly passable version of this content complete game on the Nintendo Switch. So, if you have the ability to get the uh, to get you know a a better port, I just I hate to use that word, but it is right. If you if you have the ability to get a better port of the game at a decent price, go ahead. But if you if you have the Nintendo Switch and you've got nine bucks lying around and you've wanted to check it out with as much stuff as there is to do there, it is hard to to not recommend a game with that much to do for nine bucks. It's it's a lot and I really, really am enjoying myself. I'm probably going to be putting more time into that game than I should over the coming months, just <laughs> unlocking stuff and, and just, but yeah, I'm er, Eric loves fighting games. So Eric, very happy right now. Um, oh yeah. In addition to that, I've been playing a little bit more in tears of the kingdom, just running around and cleaning stuff up. The Koroks of course are, are, you know, they keep me coming back, but honestly just running around Hyrule and having some fun is still quite a, is still a blast. So I do enjoy doing that. I played a little bit more. I am trying to get back into battle network, Mega Man battle network. I started that game like an idiot right before tears of the kingdom came out. And of course it's been sitting on my shelf ever since, but I, I, I still really want to play it. I don't want to forget it. So I have gotten back in to that. I did also just today, finally get in my special reserve games copy of inscription which i am really stoked to play at some point in the near future uh but i definitely wanted to save this little this little part for last um i also played the ghost trick ah, demo good man good man <laughs> yes <laughs> so we'll we'll talk about it uh or we have talked about it during our uh, news roundup live on youtube.com slash all in podcast. But yes, as part of Capcom's showcase, they did drop a demo for the forthcoming ghost trick switch remaster uh, that you all are going to play the demo for and going to buy once it comes out. Of course, uh, aren't they Seth? 
I, I I certainly hope so. They should. If you got any sense, you will. It's uh, it's it's an excellent game. It's one of my all time favorites, and I mean, it's thirty bucks. It comes out in like two weeks at this point. I, yep. I can't wait. I know you can't, but uh, yeah, mostly Mortal Kombat, some other stuff. But uh, what about you, brother? Well, I mean, what did you think about the demo? Did you? I mean, did you? Well, did you yeah, play through the whole thing? Did you? Yeah, I, I played through the whole thing, and I, yeah, it's 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 re- it's so unique. One of the things I loved and still love about the DS is all the different unique experiences and all the interesting ways that they were using that console. And it's so obvious from the offset that Ghost Trick is one of those things where the developers just said, you know, we have a unique platform, which means we have a unique opportunity from a gameplay design perspective. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's what they did. You, you play as this, this murdered character who's able to possess other things in the environment to jump from item to item to solve puzzles. It's, it's, you know, I'm just trying to break it down into a genre. My mind wants to say like point and click adventure, but even that doesn't feel quite right. Yeah, not really. It's it's weird because you're like you're you're basically doing these like Rube Goldberg machines. Like you're just triggering events, like to trigger other events, sort of thing. And uh, you're doing it with the ability to go back in time. Ironically enough, four minutes before the before the moment of a of a person or a character's death, um, in order to try to prevent that death, change their fate, and uncover the mystery of the the main character Sissel and who murdered him and what's going on and and all this and um, the the great thing about that demo is like it lets you play the game's first two chapters, which I think is a great taste of the game. Um, it's you're, you'll probably get through it in less than an hour, probably like between forty five minutes and an hour, I would say. Uh, I would take you to do that. And it gives you specifically the second scenario the game puts you in, I think gives you a good idea. The game obviously ramps up like significantly from there, but it gives you a good enough kind of taste of what the gameplay of the game is like and the sort of thing you should expect from the game's puzzles um, as it progresses. And I think that ending on chapter two gives you a good hook. Like if you're getting, if you, if you have that hook of the, of being intrigued by the story, I think that where they leave you off at the end of chapter two will keep you wanting more. I think it's a pretty well structured demo. You know, weirdly enough, as I was playing it, I was, uh, the games aren't necessarily too similar, but just because of how unique they both are, I was playing and I was like, God, I would love a trauma center switch port. Yeah. They're in a similar vibe. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're certainly in a similar vibe. It um, it, it's also one thing that I that I did notice playing this demo that I was admittedly really concerned about um coming into this for the most part, like ninety nine percent of the way. You know, go, the Ghost Trick Phantom Detective on the DS is maybe my favorite animation in any game ever. Um. It is just beautifully, painstakingly animated, uh, almost to the point where like it looks like rotoscoping. It's so good. And here, remastered and kind of like smoothed out and put up on the, the kind of big screen, it still looks really good. But I do think that something's been a little bit lost uh, in, in the translation. And in particular, there are a couple little animations like Missile's Tail 
that I noticed looked a little bit strange. Okay. Like it just like like it, it was as if like they they had to go back over all of the frames of animation for all the characters, obviously, and kind of smooth them out and you know put actual polygons and textures it's not just on a ds anymore and i don't think it is like a hundred percent there it's still probably as good as it can be all things considered and the character portraits are still beautiful and clean and you know that all looks great but like i think that ghost tricks super fans might see a couple of little cracks in the in the frame Mm -hmm. but um but but for the most part, I don't think most people even notice. I think it looks great, and I'm just I'm honestly just thrilled it exists. Yeah, when it comes to that, I would defer to you. I don't have nearly as much experience with the DS version as you do, so I wouldn't. I clearly wouldn't notice anything like that. Like I'm I like I was like, you know, that's Missile's tail. Okay, cool. I didn't notice anything yeah. off with it myself. So couple just little tiny, teeny tiny nitpicks like that. There's um there's a, there's a character a very particular character that doesn't appear in these first two chapters, but does appear very soon after um, that, that I'm looking forward to seeing how he's represented in the game. Cause he in particular is a very, he has like by far the most animation frames of any other character in the game. And he has a lot of like moving parts and I'm going to be really curious to see like little things like that. And again, these are just, you know, nitpicky details that only the superest of super fans like myself will notice. But, um, but I did notice them still. I'm just, I'm happy it exists at all. It's 30 bucks and um, I, I can't wait. I, I can't wait to play <laughs> through that game again. I'm, I'm happy for you that it's coming back. I know how much you love that game. So I know very you, special. Yeah. I know you are waiting with bated breath for the end of this month. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I did. So I did play that too. And I'm glad we, we talked about that. I'm glad you played it as well. I hope everybody listening to this has played it. Well, I mean, um, I played it just for the sake of, you know, wanting to keep my head, frankly, because yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't be on this show and not having, you know, not having played that. Yeah. You have to at least try it. I, you know, it's one of those things where like, If you don't buy the game, like if you play the demo and it just doesn't vibe with you, I get it. It's not going to be for everybody. I'm not like, you know, some totalitarian dictator or something saying thou shalt buy Ghost Trick. Help. But but (laughs) I do, the demo is free. Like if you can't even give me 45 minutes of your time to play the free demo to at least try it then you know what? Then that is unforgivable. <laughs> like that, I, I I will be a stickler about that. At least try it. It's free, all right? Seth, so Seth's going to slide into your DMs like, do you have 45 minutes to talk about our Lord and Savior ghost trick and detective? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, it's it's really, really good. I hope you all play it and I hope you all hit me up in the Discord and let me know what you think, positive or negative. Like, I just want to, I want to talk about ghost trick. It's, it's you know, it's an all-timer for me. Nice. Um, and any case, I I also I'm still playing some Tears of the Kingdom. I'm I'm popping in there like once a day, tracking down my last few shrines. Yep. You know, sort of just you know messing around in there. Uh, I still play Anilin every day. Also, yes, that game, uh, the game still just came out. Also uh, for European regions and New Zealand regions and uh, Australian regions. So um, hopefully y'all can can go ahead and get in on it too. Um, it's it's great. I, I love going in there and just, you know, doing a run or two and then, you know, calling it a day with my morning coffee. Um, I played a bunch of demos this week also. 
Uh, I played the demo for Paleo Pines, which yeah. big thanks to um, to our friends at Modus Games for sending that code along. Um, the the demo is going to be part of Steam Next Fest, which begins next week. Um, and we got early access to the demo. It was the Steam version of the game, but the game's coming out on September 26th for Nintendo Switch as well. So I put a video up on the channel. And, you know, typically when I... When I do a video, when I sit down to record like a gameplay video, I usually go for maybe 45 minutes, an hour, try not to spoil too much of the game, try to just kind of give you a taste of what the game is like and showcase it a little bit. But for this one, I just, I looked over at my OBS window and I'd been going for two hours. Like it just, the time melted away. I couldn't believe how much I enjoyed myself. Like the game itself is kind of basic and it's sort of like, it's nothing like insane. It's not like a Stardew Valley. You don't have like all these different relationships or whatever, but it is just so like wholesome and cute and like good hearted that like I felt myself just like wanting to spend time in its world. Like it's just this idyllic green pastures, adorable dinosaurs everywhere you know, I like dinosaurs I, I, and I like adorable things. Yeah. This, I mean, this one was on my radar just because of the dinosaurs. For those who don't know, when I was very young, there was a large portion of my youth that I genuinely thought I was going to be a paleontologist when I For grew sure. up. So, uh, like I was, I was, I loved dinosaurs as a kid and still, you know, as an adult, uh, you know, if you want to get me interested in something, a shortcut Minus a couple things. A shortcut is probably just to say there's dinos involved. Yeah, it it's just it's cute, man. And it, it is pretty like visually, it's fairly simplistic. Like it, you know, it, it kind of has like it almost reminds me of like the art style almost reminds me of like Neopets or something. Yeah. That kind of like Yeah, I can see that, that sort of vibe. It, you it know? does kind of look like something you'd see on Disney Junior or something. Right. Like it's very like it's yeah, it's it's like it looks like a kid's game, but it has like some more complicated mechanics and some more interesting mechanics than I initially expected, because not only does the game have a heavy emphasis on farming, so it does have that sort of like farming life sim element to it, but the implementation of the dinosaurs is really interesting because the dinosaurs uh, are sort of the way that you interact with the world. Uh, one thing that becomes really clear when you get into the game, all the characters are talking about, oh my God, there was like this rock slide and I can't get back to my home in like this area. So we're kind of having to make refuge in this like town and we're selling stuff and we're doing what we can, but like my home is here and I can't get there because it's covered by all these rocks. And the only way to do it is by befriending these, they're called something else, but they're basically triceratops they apparently like they have been discovering new dinosaurs and, and like renaming dinosaurs. I, I thought we ran out of dinosaurs. I thought we were fresh out. I thought they stopped making those, but apparently not. Uh, they're still finding fossils and making new dinosaurs. Apparently I'm fairly um, certain they haven't been making new dinosaurs in <laughs> 65 million years. Pretty sure that's, that's what thing. I thought too. That's what I thought too. But you know, paleo pine says something different. Um, <laughs> in any case, we got the 2023 <laughs> run of new dinos. That's what it feels like. Um, these triceratops like things uh, are essentially you have to like befriend them and earn their trust so that you can use them to remove the rocks. 
Um, and it's, it's interesting because like the way you befriend the dinosaurs in this game, you have this flute that you approach and all the dinosaurs sing like a friendship song, which is just adorable. And you have to not only like, you know, properly speak to the dinos using this music, but then you have to learn like what their favorite food is and give them their favorite food and like kind of slowly befriend them. And eventually you can lead them to like their, you can make a pen for them kind of at your homestead. Um, you can make sure that they're like happy enough and eventually they'll trust you enough to saddle up on them, ride them and use their abilities. And um, so there's there's a lot more kind of going on here than I initially thought. And the world is bigger than there's just more to this game than I thought in basically every respect. And I came away being really impressed and getting kind of sucked into it. Like I said, I normally go for 45 minutes, an hour. This video is like two hours long <laughs> and I could have edited it down or something. But I was just like, no, like I had a great time playing this. Genuinely, and I'm really excited actually for the full release. Like, I could see this being the kind of thing that I just want to like hang out with my little cute dinosaur buddies. You know, um, who doesn't really want cool. to hang out with cute dinosaur buddies? Yeah, D it's dinosaur the kind of thing. bunnies, buddies, dinosaur buddies. Yeah. I don't know. They could be dinosaur bunnies. Who knows? There could be. They'll, but uh, they'll discover that. Yeah, <laughs> that's the 2025 uh, Dino expansion pack. Uh, but speaking of, you know, bunnies and, you know, other cute woodland creatures, you've kept me on the hook long enough, Seth. There's a certain indie <laughs> game coming out uh, that you and I are both incredibly excited for. You and I have both supported this game on Kickstarter, but you've actually already played the demo for Greg Lobanov's Beastie Ball. So tell me, tell mm -hmm. me, tell me, tell me, tell me. Yeah, it's really good. It's uh, it's another real good Greg Lobanov end team game. Uh, surprising nobody. Um, yeah, it is. It's what it says on the tin. It is Pokemon, but volleyball. Um, <laughs> the the thing about it is, and we talked about this, you know, uh, last week on the show, and this, it, it was really cool, like full circle moment for us. But getting to play it, like. It was one of those things where, like, you kind of let go and let God when it comes to Greg. Like, I just, I know that I'm going to like whatever he makes, you yeah. know? Um, but it was cool to be able to actually play this demo and see those concepts represented uh, in a couple of interesting ways. First of all, the game apparently is going to have online PvP, which I did not expect coming into it. Uh, this is something that I have seen Greg talk about in interviews. They're, uh, one of the stretch goals actually for the Kickstarter. You can like play against friends just, you know, kind of innately with the game, um, online. But one of the stretch goals for the Kickstarter currently is to introduce online matchmaking. So you can also play with rando. So like there's going to be an online component to this game, which is interesting to me. Uh, I didn't expect that. I thought it was going to be strictly single player. Yeah, the game's um, already but, reached its Kickstarter goal. Uh, it's yeah. as of this recording, you can still support it on Kickstarter, but you know it's like it's going to get made. It's Greg Lebon. If it's already reached its goal, this game is coming. Yeah, it's it's going to get made. Um, and it's interesting too because unlike Pokemon, collection is not the goal of this game, and in fact. It is not like a gotta catch them all game. Like you can do that. It'd probably be kind of difficult for you to do that because each um, each beastie has got like basically conditions to convince it to join your team versus like let me go into a battle, 
put it to sleep, slap it around until its HP gets really low, and then throw a ball <laughs> to keep it in forever. You know? Um, it's not like that in this game. In this game, it is this beastie wants to, you know, either see you do this or have your team reach this level or whatever, and then it'll be, you know, willing to join your team, and you give it a jersey to join your team. You can give it a, you know, its own team number. You can give it, like, a nickname, just like you can in Pokemon. Um, but it's not about, like, catching them all. It's about being really invested in your team, which is cool and, and interesting, and I think a really nice change of pace from the tone of Pokemon, which was Greg's entire idea to begin with, even going back like three years ago on the show, he's like, I really want to just like tap into the personalities of these beasties. And to that end, one of the interesting things is like when you're, when you're actually in the game and you're doing the volleyball combat, um, the beasties will get to know each other and they'll eventually build like relationships and friendships and they'll get specific moves like Chrono Trigger style that can accentuate their friendships. And some beasties are better at certain things than others. Um, and it's like, it's really interesting. They've made like a really unique and cool turn-based RPG with volleyball kind of at the center of it, of all things. And it also sort of reminds me a little bit of Dodgeball Academia. Um, the way that like this entire world is kind of centered around Beastie Ball um, and, and the plot is too, like the whole plot is like your, you know, your mentors, this like kind of, you know, too old for this, you know, coach or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> getting too sort old of, for this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, and you sort of like take the reins of the beastie ball league away from him. And much like in Pokemon, now you have to go through the entire open world. It is an open world game. And you, you go through the open world and challenge the other, you know, pro league champions and get sponsorships rather than gym badges, you know, that sort of thing. But they're also working in something akin to Chicory, where one of the things about Chicory is, like, every chapter is sort of broken up by a new ability that you get with the uh, the brush. This seems to be doing the same thing, because when I got to the first town, which is, uh, it's called Rutile Town... Um, and I that got there. Like a Pokemon name, <laughs> totally. Oh, yeah, and Lena Rain is going full Pokemon with the music. Like it is so. Nice. It is. It is. Lena Rain does Pokemon. Like absolutely. I'm there. Um, it's it's great. Like it's it's great, great, great stuff already. Um, but you're talking to the characters and they're like, oh man, like if, like, if only we could jump, we could like get over this barrier and everything. And so I, I thought it was just kind of a tongue in cheek, like, oh, I get it because you don't jump in Pokemon games really. I get that's funny, whatever. But then after I did the first battle and the game sort of like let you loose, your character just learns the ability to jump. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> you know? And then all of a sudden it just adds this entire new like dimension to, the traversal. Now, the demo doesn't let you go very far, like course, at all. Yeah. There's not a whole lot you can do. It's very, very early, but um, but like just the notion of that, the notion of like taking those kind of like not tropes, but those typical trappings of Pokemon and sort of like removing the shackles of that. I can't wait to see the the way the game further does that as as you progress. So um, yeah, no, it's, it's great, man. Uh, there's a video up on the channel of, of me playing it. I can't wait for the full release. We got to have Greg back on the show absolutely, uh, to, to talk about it. Um, it's, it's really good. There's no Nintendo switch version confirmed at the moment, but I mean, 
Like, but I mean, come yeah. on, it's gonna come to Switch. Chicory's so. on the Switch. Wander Song's on the Switch. Yeah. It's like, it, it, it's coming to Switch, guys. Like, yeah, and and also I want to say too because I. <laughs> right well i want to say too just to for clarification um greg did say like currently it's only confirmed for pc but if you back the game and then they wind up saying hey it is going to come to switch um you can get a switch code like instead of a pc code when the game's ready to come out um and in addition to that if the p if the uh, switch version comes out later like post Kickstarter, post PC launch, like Wandersong and Chicory did, yep. then Kickstarter backers will also get a discount on the console version of the game, which is a really cool, thoughtful thing to like go ahead and promise. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really but I mean, good. But uh, but even if, even in the the long shot worst timeline of this game never coming to the Switch, this was still absolutely something I was going to back day one on Kickstarter anyway. So. Can't wait to see what the final product looks like, Greg. Yes. Yes, it's it's really, really good. Um, excited to play the full thing, but the last thing that I will shout out is a game that just came out this week called Fall of Porcupine, um, <laughs> which uh, hu- huge thanks to the publisher in that case as well who passed along a code so that we could check it out. There's a video on the YouTube channel of me playing the first like hour and 15 minutes of the game as well. And this is effectively... Um, this is very Night in the Woods inspired, like very Night in the Woods inspired. It did like you can tell, seem that way. Yeah, you can tell right away that it's it's night. It, it is like it's autumn in this kind of like sleepy town. Uh, you play as a pigeon named Finley. It's a town full of like anthropomorphic animals. It is very very Night in the Woods. There's also something darker kind of going on you know, bubbling under the surface. But the big sort of hook of this game, like uh, from a narrative perspective that really does separate it from that is that, you know, a night in the woods, you're like a listless, you know, college dropout trying to find her way in the world. Finley is a doctor and Finley works at the local hospital and you have to like be a doctor. You have to, you know, work with the staff and you have like a head doctor who's kind of like this disciplinary figure and mentor to you. Uh, you have to tend to patients and do these little like mini games to, uh, to help your patients out. Um, when the game opens up, there's like an accident that happened that put your character out of commission for a few days. And it becomes clear that like he has some sort of, you know, uh, depression as a result of it. He's kind of like, he just moved to Porcupine. So he's kind of like trying to find his way in this new world and stuff and making new friends. Um, the game is clearly like going somewhere and has like an interesting commentary and is kind of dealing with like human issues in the way that that night in the woods did. Um, so I'm really interested to see where the game goes. Um, I will say this is a very Seth complaint. You know, I'm a stickler for this. Uh, (laughs) there, there's some typos in the, uh, are there really dialogue? Okay. Yeah. There's, there was a couple moments there where there were a couple typos in the dialogue, like have an, a nice day, you know, (laughs) stuff like that. Um, Maybe the character just wanted you to have an a nice day. (laughs) Yeah. It's the kind of thing that like really annoys me, but doesn't annoy, you know, most people, most people won't care. But for me, I'm like, I really should, somebody really should just hire me to be a copy editor on a game. Cause like that, that stuff bothers me. But uh, in any case, 
Um, the vibes are right. The music's great. The art is beautiful. The game looks gorgeous. It runs well on Switch. Uh, I'm looking forward to kind of like seeing where it goes. There's also a free prologue demo uh, on the Switch that you can play. Um, again, very much taking a page out of Night in the Woods' book. Night in the Woods did a very similar thing. Um, so, you know, like, again, the, the game has, like, worn its inspirations on its sleeve, but the the Doctor angle, I think, really is giving it a unique flavor, and uh, it's really cool. It's also on a, a launch window discount um, until July 6th. Uh, you can get it for sixteen ninety nine as yes. opposed to nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, it's normally twenty bucks, but right now you can get it for seventeen. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I'm looking forward to checking it out myself. Like I said, it very much seemed like it was Night in the Woods inspired, but I remember seeing like we saw it somewhere at a Wholesome or, or an Indie World or yeah or something like that, and it it looked really cool. So I was interested to check it out myself, and now we have the opportunity because it's out. Yay! Yeah, yeah, it's out. Yay! Thanks again to the publisher for uh, for letting us play it and, and check it out. Looking forward to playing more. You get to be a pigeon doctor. Enough said. <laughs> you get to be <laughs> enough said. Fair enough. But, uh, you know, let us know what you guys are up to this week. Reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Join the conversation over in Discord. We would love to hear what you guys are, uh, what you guys have been up to the past week. But, but Seth, this weekend is Father's Day. And, it is. you know, a lot of uh, a lot of fathers feel like they get forgotten. Mother's Day is lauded as this, you know, this big thing. But Father's Day, I think a lot of people feel gets treated with a lot less significance, but not here at all in not here at all. in. however, uh, we started something this past Mother's Day that we are finishing today. Yeah, we did. We uh, for Mother's Day this year. We said, let's take a different approach. Let's actually make, you know, everybody appreciate their mothers, perhaps, by, um, you know, by, by, by talking about the the mothers in Nintendo history that you're glad you don't have. Like, <laughs> thank God you don't have these mothers, right? I um, definitely go back and, so and check doing, that list out. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Because this is a full circle moment for us. This week in the top five, we're talking about the top five Nintendo dads that you're glad you don't have. All right, Eric, the top five bad Nintendo dads that you are glad that you don't have. What are the rules? Well, for this, we are talking about uh, biological and maybe even some adoptive fathers in Nintendo history, as long as you are specifically designated as the father of another character. But we are specifically talking about familial relationships. So... Just because you happen to be a biological father in a game and you do bad things doesn't necessarily make you a bad dad. We think Bowser's a great dad, actually. Oh, yeah. He may be the villain, but from a paternal standpoint, I mean, he's a single dad. He's out here grinding away, trying to build a future for the next generation, even though the jury's out on the actual biological uh, husbandry of... You know, the the Koopalines, he's still their father figure. So he's got like eight young ones back home that he's trying to provide. He's, Bowser's a great dad. Not a good guy, but a great dad. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about characters that are actually bad fathers. These are the dads that you are glad you don't have. Yeah, ma'am. Yeah. And there's, <laughs> there's plenty to choose from. We also want to say that 
There may be some entries on this list. There may be characters that could have placed on this list theoretically, but turned out as we were doing both research and kind of talking through and, and constructing the list together, there were a lot of them where like them being a bad father was like the entire like <laughs> narrative crux of the game. Yeah, we found um, more instances than we thought of where dad is a jerk turns out to be a fairly major plot reveal. Right, like an actual like big time spoiler, and um and so there there are some sig- you you might hear some significant omissions on the list because of that. We'll we'll touch on some of those in the honorable mentions, but I just wanted to let you guys know that yes, there are some that that had to be off the list so that we didn't just like come out and straight up spoil entire games in a top five. I'll drop a few so. of those in the spoiler zone on Discord this weekend. There you go. Yeah, and we can certainly talk about that in the uh, in the spoiler zone. But Eric, uh, let's get into it, man. What's our number yes. five? Our number five is the titular God of the Underworld from Supergiant's magnum opus, at least to date, Hades. We're talking about the man himself, Hades. Hades uh, from Hades. Hades from <laughs> Hades, yeah. And he's at number five because... Honestly, you know, this isn't just recency bias, maybe more so than any parental figure in video game history. The good parent, bad parent argument with Hades is incredibly interesting. If you've played the game, you know what we're talking about, but it certainly cannot be denied that Hades does exhibit a lot of real toxic masculinity, a lot of just objectively bad stuff going on you could argue he's doing the best he can as a as a single parent and all that but yeah at the end of the day he also kills his own son quite often which we couldn't (laughs) really get past that's the thing man like the the thing about yeah i understand you know he's doing you know he's doing what he can he's trying to protect Zagreus ultimately and this that and the other you could even i've heard the argument like well look at his upbringing like look at how his brothers you know treat him and stuff like this and like i i get it i get the whole messed up you know family tree i i understand why he became a jerk even like why he continues to act like a jerk Mm-hmm. Doesn't excuse him being a jerk, though. And, you know, like, you know, some of the belittlement and, like, the emotional, you know, abuse that he puts onto Zagreus, even besides from the, you know, the obvious fact that he is, like, the game's boss and you will literally die at his hands, you know, probably multiple times when you're playing the game. Um, yeah, I mean, like, he's still, he still, he doesn't get, like, high on the list, but he still does just need to be on the list. Yeah, some later game reveals and some of the stuff that happens later on throughout the narrative certainly keep him from being higher on the list. But, uh, I mean, ultimately, Hades was a game where the father-son relationship was really the beating heart, the disemboweled beating heart of the game, but the beating heart of the game nonetheless. And... Uh, the, the performances of the characters certainly drive a lot of the emotion and the impact of what's going on. And especially the performances of Zagreus and Hades were just so wonderfully done. Like you could feel the, the polite disdain for each other. It was just like, Oh, what were you? Were you two in a band together? What did you guys hate? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it can be pretty rough, but, uh, going into our number four, 
Um, and, and actually, this is another one where we sort of need to tiptoe around spoilers. Um, our number four is Raya's father from A Space for the Unbound. Um, this character, you know, the, the two main characters of A Space for the Unbound are Atma and Raya, right? Um, you're playing mm-hmm. as Atma. Raya is, is Atma's girlfriend. And again, I don't want to get into like big story spoilers or whatever. Um, however, you come to learn that Raya's home life is not very good at all. And, and this is actually where, uh, there, there's quite a serious undertone, uh, of the game and, and some pretty overt abuse from Raya's father. Um, physical even abuse from yeah. Raya's father that, that really kind of like uh, influences the person that, that Raya becomes and really sort of like kicks off the events of the game in many ways. Yeah. So a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is kind of fun. All the games we're talking about have very fantastical elements to them. And a lot of the characters we're going to be talking about are very larger than life. I think our, I think our number five is a perfect example of that. But when it comes to Raya's dad, as fantastical as a space for the unbound can get, there's just something viscerally grounded and real world about the piece of garbage that he is and what he does. I mean, both physically, but yes, also psychologically to his daughter. Uh, And by extension, you know, uh, Raya's mother, uh, his wife. It's just, it makes for, it makes for a home life that I genuinely couldn't imagine. Thankfully, things didn't get worse, but objectively, he is a human piece of filth and absolutely deserves a spot on this list. Yeah, and and there are other examples of like, you know, actual abusive, you know, fathers in video games and even in Nintendo's history. There's a moment in Earthbound where Picky and Pokey's dad beats them. You know, mm-hmm. and, and that sort of is, uh, is like, they, they actually like kind of translated it out in the, uh, American version of, of the game. Um, probably justifiably so. Um, but, but like, yeah, when, when it came to that sort of character, um, I, I think that Raya's father sort of takes the cake. Yeah. And it, you know, just so happens that it's presented in, one of the best indie games of the year as well. So that also certainly helps the portrayal, but going into our number three, you know, we're kind of treating this as a full circle moment with, with, (laughs) you know, with us starting this list uh, in earnest on mother's day. And there was an entry that we put on our list for mother's day that, I mean, if we're going to put the mom on, We got to put the dad on. Our number three is Cody from It Takes Two. Yep. Same reasons, too, by the way. Exact same reason. (laughs) Just go back and listen to our Mother's Day list. Take everything we said about May and just put it right here for Cody. Copy, paste for (laughs) Cody. But the Cliff's Notes version, the TLDR, is that... Cody and May's, it's not just a one-sided thing as it was with Raya's father being incredibly abusive. It is, you know, May and Cody have this incredibly toxic relationship and frankly probably shouldn't be together anymore. The problem is, is their young daughter just keeps getting caught in the middle of it and it's traumatizing her and tearing her apart. And 
just taking all of that real world aspect out of it, even some of the things that they wind up doing once they are transformed into their doll versions for this game, there's a couple things that happen in this game that are a unforgivable and B kind of traumatizing to the player in their own right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we we've talked you can watch our entire playthrough on, on YouTube. Of, That's true. Uh, of yeah. It takes two. That's true. Um, we did a two part full playthrough of it takes two. Uh, up yep. on the YouTube channel in uh, November, I think, of last year when the game yeah. came out on the Switch. Super, yeah, super a, fun. Had a great time. It's, it's a great game. It's, I mean, it's still, it's the best co-op game ever made. It's it's fantastic. Um, however, yeah, May and Cody are, are awful and they're completely irredeemable in my eyes. There's a particular moment and it takes two. And from that moment on, I hated them and will hate them forevermore <laughs> and uh, very deserving of, of his placement on this list. <laughs> yeah, very clearly staked their claim to this list. You, they like so often it, it is morbidly refreshing to see characters because so often uh, in video games, we see characters presented with a choice that goes right up to the line of no return and characters exhibit their virtue and they realize the error of their ways and they come back from the precipice of going too far. Cody and May didn't even see the line. They yeah. didn't even realize it was there. It was just like, and so they are, they are full gone. They honestly, CPS probably should be called. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. But going into our number two, um, this, this is also another, you know, quite literally larger than life figure, um, from, a, I, I should have mentioned earlier that I finally got my copy of we love Katamari yeah. because it, it, it feeds into our number two, who is Papa, the high King, the, the original King of all cosmos from we love Katamari. <laughs> it just so happens that the remake of we love Katamari just also it happened to have just come out and I haven't had a chance to play the, the, the remake yet, but Seth, uh, weirdly enough, it actually plays even deeper into this list because apparently there is some extra content in the remake that even further fleshes out how bad he is. Right. So, so here's the interesting thing. And this, and this character is one of those that sort of like comes around or like, you can kind of like understand maybe, but no, it's still just like Hades, not justified. And the way that, I mean, you know, like it's sort of the narrative thrust of We Love Katamari anyway, actually, mm -hmm. is um, is like the cutscenes of the game uh, get into the King of All Cosmos' backstory. And you see when he was a kid being like emotionally and physically abused by, by his dad, like literally hits him in a cutscene. And even like he just held him to such a high standard, like he wanted him to be perfect. And he did like a he did like a boxing match and got a second place trophy. There's a cutscene where uh, where Papa, his dad, is like literally he gives him the second place trophy, like so proud, and he just like tosses it into the lake, just like a total jerk. Causes him to like run away from home and like this whole thing. And it's one of those things where like the the toxicity of him. And yeah, he comes around and stuff like this and he does ultimately love his son, but him being so cruel to his son made his son grow into a person that is cruel to their son. And 
Like, when you play Katamari and the King of All Cosmos is a jerk to you and, like, nothing, none of your Katamari are ever good enough for him, like, he, like, no matter what, like, when you make, like, a great, you know, Katamari and you, like, totally exceed the goal of the level, do it in, in, like, more than enough time or whatever, he's still like, yeah, it's okay. Like, I guess it's worthy of, like, being up in the stars. I guess. It's, yeah, pretty good. He did pretty good. Like, that's, like, the best you get out of him. Um... That comes from his dad. And the notion that, like, this character, who is, like, the OG King of All Cosmos, was such a bad, mean dad that it also just, like, sent that ripple effect to the next King of All Cosmos. Like, that is, you know, uh, toxicity and abuse on the cosmic scale. Um, (laughs) Transgenerational. Yes. Yes, for sure. And also... You know, despite the fact that, like, yeah, these characters are, like, they're lovable characters and there is some love there, but it doesn't change the fact that, like, a toxic jerk is a toxic jerk. Um, and yes, in the, in the re-release that just came out, the one that I finally got, like, a month later from Amazon, <laughs> um, it, it did I'm introduce... Sorry. Yeah, it's fine. It's it's We Love Katamari Reroll plus Royal Reverie. And the plus Royal Reverie part comes from, they have uh, introduced some brand new content into the game. Uh, this Royal Reverie sort of side story. And it's very slight. It's uh, It's just five stages. You can get through it in, you know, 30 minutes or something. It's not a lot. Um, but it does add like a lot more texture to that relationship because in the Royal Reverie stages, you are playing as the young prince. And instead of the King of all cosmos talking to you as the prince, Papa is talking to you as the young King of all cosmos. Not that that's confusing at all. Um, (laughs) So, so you, you get to actually sort of like live out that relationship and be talked down to and, and get to kind of like see it firsthand. So, yeah, but the game's great and I'm happy it's out. Um, and, and it's really cool that they like, again, even though it's slight, it's cool that there's new content in there at all. Um, it's, it's more than I was expecting. Frankly, I would have been happy if it was just like a straight, you know, re-release, but they did add a little bit more to it and it added even more texture to him being a bad dad. <laughs> <laughs> when you're such a bad dad, they actually have to add more stuff in there just to accentuate, just to let people know. It's like, no, he's actually worse than that. Look at this. Yeah. It's, but it's the whole plot of this game functionally. But before we get to our number one, Seth, uh, do we have any honorable mentions that we can that we can That's mention? The thing, man. That's the <laughs> thing. There are so many in here that, like, you know, if you've played these games, How about him? no. Yeah, exactly. Like if you've played these games, you know why we can't spoil. We can't. We can't get into detail about why Handsome Jack from Borderlands Two is one of the all-time bad dads, right? Like, yeah, there's a couple (laughs) that we can talk about. Uh, Dracula from the Castlevania series very nearly made our list. Of course, Mm -hmm. Alucard very famously is uh, is a recurring character throughout the series. Premiered in Castlevania Three: Dracula's Curse on the NES. Uh, and has made probably more appearances on Nintendo consoles than you remember. Aria of Sorrow, Dawn of Sorrow, and several others. But, you know, kind of most famously, Symphony of the Night is Alucard's big grand coming out adventure. And because that's not on the Nintendo Switch, it did severely affect our ability to add Dracula to this list. And similarly, 
there are a couple terrible fathers from the history of fighting games. I mean, fighting games are, I, I mean, you could practically throw a dart at a board when it comes to fighting game characters and probably land on a bad father. But, you know, people like Heihachi Mishima immediately come to mind. But because, like, the original Tekkens aren't on Nintendo consoles and because Tekken 7 isn't on Nintendo console, Heihachi does some truly heinous stuff in those games. But because those aren't part of Nintendo canon, it severely hampered our ability to put Heihachi on this list. But he's absolutely worth mentioning. Similarly, like Shao Kahn and some other Mortal Kombat characters. Um I mean, I even talked about, you know, Sindel was actually on our worst mother's list. Right. So, right. But uh, yeah, but just wanted to definitely throw those out there because they are certainly worth mentioning, even if their appearances in Nintendo games uh, didn't quite live up to the level of some of the all time pieces of garbage that we've talked about here today already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, you know, like Final Fantasy X is on Switch and Ject is a bad dad, uh, for sure. That actually, you know, that that's something that that resonated with me a lot when I when I played that game. I don't have a great relationship with my biological father. My stepdad's amazing and and he's great, but like the relationship that that Titus and Ject have really hit a chord with me when I was a teenager, and it has a lot to do with why I love that game so much. Um, so. Definitely shout outs to to that. But then there are other ones, you know, Booker from Bioshock Infinite. Uh, that's a spoiler. Manfred von Karma from Ace Attorney. Spoilers. Yeah, Can't I don't get into that. How, yeah, I don't know even how much we want to say too much. About, but yeah, but like I said, we'll talk about a few of these more in the spoiler zone on the Discord. However, yes. however there is one recurring theme. One terrible running joke almost that I mean we just kind of have to finally rip the band-aid off and talk about when it comes to our number one isn't that right Seth yeah so when it comes to our number one and this is another full circle moment from the the you know Mother's Day top five in our Mother's Day top five we specifically, and we did think about, and I know a lot of people like to say, like, the mothers in the Pokemon series are so awful. How dare they let their, like, you know, 11, 12, 13-year-old kids or whatever go run off and explore the world. And what we said there, and I, I stand by this, is that they're not terrible mothers because that is the the societal precedent set upon in the Pokemon universe. It's a cultural How- norm. Totally, totally, right? It's a cultural norm. It's They're well within reasoning to do that. However... At, at least they're there. At least they're there because our number one is just the absentee fathers from practically every entry in the Pokemon series. So many times in the world of Pokemon, apparently, the father has gone out to pick up something at the Pokemart and never came back home. <laughs> it is insane to me how many absentee fathers are off gallivanting. Who knows what? Probably trying to live out, probably still trying to, to live out their Pokemon Master Dream, even though they're probably you know middle-aged by now. And I bet that's what a lot of the hikers and Pokemaniacs that you meet throughout the course of they're probably just all absentee fathers with kids and wives and you know 
Lord knows what, you know, families at home. Just go home and take care of your kids. <laughs> yeah. And and there have been some pretty notable exceptions to this. Uh, I think it's in Pokemon X and Y where like your you, you your father's kind of there like in like the garden or something, like this kind of non-character, very much not like involved. Um there's also the character of Norman from uh from Ruby and Sapphire, who's a gym leader who is canonically the player character's father. Um other than that though, I don't think there's another instance of like the player character's father being present in any of the games. <laughs> yeah. They even directly address this in Sword and Shield with uh uh with Arwen or oh god, what's the uh the your rival with uh the uh my boss diff. Oh the the cook. Oh gosh. Uh is it yeah. is it Arvin? Arvin, yes, Arvin? thank you. Yeah. I was thinking Arwen, like Lord of the Rings or something. No, but yeah. uh, Arvin, who's uh, who's canonically related to the Professor, you know, Professor Toro or Professor Sada. But for the cases of this, you know, Professor Toro, uh, another absentee father off doing research, completely neglecting his par- uh, parental duties. Uh, so just absentee fathers... You could also argue that that's a cultural norm for the Pokemon world, but that's one that we're going to put our foot down on. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pre- I mean like they're just not there. Now, uh in Pokemon XD Gale of Darkness, uh they they do say that the player's uh father has passed away. So so there is also that, but like not only they make basically no reference even to the fact that the father isn't there in the rest yeah. of the series. So like, it's one of those things where like, they're not just absentee. They're like really absentee. <laughs> there is, there, there is no chance of your father even sending you a postcard in most of these Pokemon games. And if it were just one or two games, okay. But this has basically happened for the past two and a half decades. So it's, it is time for the Poke Dads to come home. Take care of your families. We're living in 2023. This is not okay anymore. You know, time to step up and quit being deadbeat Poke Dads. Yeah, I mean, like, if they're off, like, working or whatever, like, they don't even say that. No, you know, they least- don't. They never reference that. We have no frame <laughs> no. of reference for what's going on. They never. So we just, we can only ascertain. Like, especially, uh, you know, a, a lot of these games, you're just moving into town. Right. Yeah. So, like, wh- where are they? Where, yeah. Like, Where's- and, and it's it's not even like um, like Ness's dad in Earthbound, for example, where, like, yeah, he's not there, but, like, he is working and you can talk to him on the and phone. He, yeah, and he you sends talk to him on the phone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, he's he's at there. Least there. And he's a pretty decent dad within the world of video <laughs> games. But just in the Pokemon franchise... It's like parental relations, it's like uh, patriarchal don't even exist. Right. Yeah. Yeah, man. I don't know. It's it's wild. So, I mean, we that, that kind of had to be our number one. And it just, it continues, man. The cycle continues still to this day. Yeah. For <laughs> continuing for two and a half decades. We're putting our foot, enough is enough. Give the Poke protagonists a father figure, for heaven's sakes. That's not, you know... 
yeah, you could argue that their father figure was like the professor for most of the series, but like give him an actual dad, my lord. Yeah, and there's you know there's all the fan theories of like Professor Oak is actually the of you know, course yeah, that. but <laughs> but that's that's but that's not canon, and you all know that. But uh, but we've grinded Pokemon's gears for long enough. Let us uh, uh, let us recount our list mm-hmm. of the dads in Nintendo history that you're glad you didn't have. Our number five, Hades. Yes, our number four was Raya's father from A Space for the Unbound. Our number three, coming full circle from our Mother's Day list, Cody from It Takes Two. Our number two from We Love Katamari, the original king of all cosmos, Papa. Papa. Number one, just the vast majority of the fathers from the Pokemon world. Yeah. Just most of them. Bad dads, y'all are but happy beats. y'all are deadbeats. You're bad dads, but happy Father's Day to the good dads out there. Um, we have plenty of, uh, of of great dads in our community. Uh, shout outs, we see you. You're great. We have fathers that we love as well. Happy Father's Day, y'all. We do, yeah. You know, tomorrow as as this episode is going live, tomorrow's Father's Day, and I just want to say. Even though it's also my niece's birthday and we're all going to Orlando to be with for her birthday and we're not even doing a Father's Day. But Father's Day is important and I love my dad. I'm yeah. not spinning it because I'm going on my niece's birthday. But know. still, I love my dad. I know. Yeah, yeah my, my dad's actually going to be at work for Father's Day, which sucks. Oh. Yeah. But you know what? But again, yeah, shout outs to the dads out there. The the ones, you know, the ones making it work. Uh, we, we see you, man. Happy Father's we do. Day this weekend. We do, uh, but ironically, ironically, the game we're about to talk about next also <laughs> kind of has a bad dad. Not quite yeah. bad enough to make the list necessarily, but certainly worth mentioning. Yeah, yeah. The tumultuous relationship that the character Mimi has with her father kicks off the events of uh, of our indie showcase this week. We uh, had the great honor to uh, to be passed along a review code for Dordogna or Dordogna, however Dordogne. you're supposed to pronounce it. And the Dordogna, I think, is the actual. For you got to put a little bit bit of that French phlegm in there. And uh, and you got it. So huge thanks to the uh, the publisher for sending that yes. along and and allowing us to check it out. It's a special special game. We've had our eyes on it for a long time, and we knew that when the time came, we were going to have to play it. We have done just that, and we are bringing you our full findings this week in the indie showcase. Yes, yeah, I'm so excited. We finally get to talk about Dordogne. We have been looking forward to this indie game for quite some time. And we just want to send another huge thank you to the developer for giving us very early access to this game. We have been we've we've been waiting with bated breath for a little while to tell you guys about it. Yeah, we've been excited uh, to to chat with you guys about this because yeah, we you know we had been I think we first saw this at maybe an indie world or indie world or a wholesome or something something yeah. like that a, a little while ago and we've had our eyes on it. It's finally here and yeah, huge sh- uh, shout outs to publisher Focus Entertainment developer Unjanisakwa uh, for sending along the code. We got to play the game you know week and a half earlier something. So we got we've had time to really kind of marinate with the game, which is always nice because there's a lot to marinate on with this game. And uh, it's it becomes clear really quickly that 
Dordogne, which I looked up a pronunciation guide. I, I did a video for the YouTube channel, and I was like, how do you even properly say this? Apparently, it's Dordogne, but, like, I Dordogne is the way you would say it in English. So, yeah, and that's that's basically how they say it in the game anyway. So, yeah. I mean... yeah. That's the English, that's the, um, you know, Anglified version of, of Dordogne. So that's what we'll go <laughs> but, with. But if that name and the name of the developer, Unjine Sequa, wasn't uh, already enough of a clue, this game is set in the French countryside. You play as a little girl named Mimi, who uh, unfortunately just found out that her grandmother passed. And... Uh, the game sees Mimi going back to her grandmother's home in the countryside next to Dordogne River and kind of trying to piece together a summer that she spent with her that she, for some reason, can't really recall that well. All the while, uh, kind of butting heads with her parents and her real life uh, in the present. So a really, really interesting set of incredibly grounded Setup. This is not, you know, uh, Persona. This is not Legend of Zelda. This is an incredibly grounded, personal, intimate story and narrative. Yeah, big time. It, you know, the game opens up quite seriously. Like when you're, the, I actually, I love the game's opening because it sets forth like the the questions of the game, the mysteries of the game, really elegantly and really quickly. Of just like you know, like what happened between you know it's it's clear early on that there is a fractured relationship between Mimi's father and Mimi's grandmother um what's going on there why can't Mimi remember anything you know like what was their relationship like the game sets that up really well really quickly and kind of you know pushes you along to uh to to you know uncover all of this and dive into Mimi's memories and see what the relationship with her grandmother was like and um kind of exploring these beautiful you know hand painted watercolor environments and uh, it's just this you know great nostalgic you know little adventure that is uh, like in some parts like fun and lighthearted in some parts incredibly sad and um yeah, I I love this game, man. <laughs> yeah, just but but honestly, one of the big calling cards about Dordogne since it first got shown off, and this game trailered incredibly well because it has just this like stunning, this striking watercolor art style. The entire game is rendered in like genuinely hand painted watercolors that were transposed essentially into explorable 3D environments. Walking around in this game genuinely feels like you're walking around inside of a watercolor painting. You remember seeing those old Winnie the Pooh animations where the the pictures in the book would just start to kind of come alive mm. while you still see the words and the writing around them? Yeah. Just it kind of gave me vibes like that, kind of vibes a little bit like Beacon Pines in that regard. But uh, it's like you're walking through. It's like you're exploring this painting up in a gallery. It's just incredibly, incredibly beautiful the entire way through. Uh, not too much in terms of uh, not in terms of extreme environmental differences. Uh, there's not a very large portion of the world that you get to explore. But every little piece that you do get to see is 
lovingly rendered with uh, just the most meticulous attention to artistic detail. Uh, if nothing else, if you wind up caring nothing about the narrative, AKA you have no soul. Uh, but even if the visuals were the only reason you played this game for it, that would honestly be enough. It is just a treat to look at from start to finish. Yeah. The, the games, there's a video that, um, that the publisher produced focus entertainment with the game's director where like, um, it's revealed that like, yeah, the game's environments are hand painted. Like it's not, it's not like you're walking through a hand painted watercolor. It is you're walking through a hand painted watercolor, which is mm -hmm. just, and it's obvious, like when there's, there's nothing that looks quite like it. And it's interesting. We were talking about this, like the only real game that even comes like into the same ballpark is Bayonetta Origins from earlier this year. And both of these games achieve this kind of art extraordinarily well. And, um, it's, it's also the kind of thing, too, where coming into the game and, and watching, like, the early trailers and stuff, I felt like I had a pretty decent idea of what the game was going to be. Specifically, mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this looks like Attack of the Friday Monsters, Boku no Natsuyasumi. Like, yeah, Shin-Chan. Yeah, like, it looks like a Kazuyabi sort of thing. And yeah. it, it kind of is, but not really at the same time, because, like, a lot of... The moment-to-moment -moment gameplay are these... It's it's daily vignettes like those games are, but a lot of it is about just kind of quiet, you know, walking from one place to another, gathering little collectibles, filling out a scrapbook, like little tiny That's, things. Oh, I love that, yeah. I love it. I love yeah. it so much. So, yeah, uh, you get to... The game starts as adult Mimi getting to uh, the home and... Uh, the, the game, the gameplay, you know, just to, to put it in terms that we can, you know, readily explain the, the game as the game is effectively a point and click adventure. Um, and once you kind of figure out the little rudimentary puzzle for how to get in your grandmother's house, you wind up finding something that triggers one of Mimi's suppressed memories. Being back here starts to trigger the memories of the events that took place. So the, the loop of this game is essentially uh, maybe we'll, we'll do a couple things and she'll eventually come across something which will trigger a memory of, you know, the next day in the timeline, essentially. And then you'll go back to when she was a kid and then you'll essentially play through that day to figure out uh, everything that happened that led up to whatever did happen, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is a really interesting kind of time jumping loop that also helps uh, keep the pace of the game moving forward really well. Uh, a lot of point and click adventures can feel very meandering and feel incredibly monotonous. Uh, and while the, while the walk speed in this game isn't exactly a sprint, uh, I, I had no problem with the pacing of this game. It'll last you about four five hours it's not a, a massive adventure but it is as long as it needs to be again this is not a big fantasy epic this is a very intimate narrative that takes exactly as long as it needs to to tell the story it needs to and the gameplay very crucially more often than not services that narrative and strengthens the narrative as opposed to just being you know, just kind of random things that you have to do in order to get from point A to point B a lot of the time. But you do get a lot of variety 
in uh, in just these few hours. It's not just a bunch of you know pick this item out of the menu to unlock the door. Make sure to uh, you know make sure to look behind every nook and cranny so you can find a key so you can uh, you know solve all the puzzles in the Spencer Mansion kind of thing. No. Uh, it's it's not really like that. It's it's a lot more explorative and it's a lot more, again, just grounded. I feel like, but when it comes to it, when it comes to the gameplay, my favorite thing about it by far is the fact that, and this is an aspect that actually reminds me another kind of weird deep cut reference and weird deep cut comparison. I told you this uh, that actually reminds me a little bit of Zach and Wiki. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a lot of the individual actions that you'll take, there are moments where you do have to find a key and put it into a door. But instead of just picking the key out of your inventory, you will take the key. You'll actually have to move the joystick. You'll have to grab the key, move the joystick, actually put it in the door yourself and then turn the key, actually uh, swivel the joystick to make the motion for unlocking and then actually grab the door and open it. You have to go through that full range of motion with the controller, giving the entire world, especially when you take into account just how great the world is to look at, to give it that extra sense of being tactile, to give you just that ever so slight feeling of being able to touch this gorgeous watercolor world that you're interacting with was such a beautiful touch. Yeah, I, I love that about the game too. And it even like ties into a theme of the game. Like one of the the things that Mimi's grandmother, uh, Nora, says to her is like, things have meaning, you know, items. Everything and, has and a memories. story or a everything, soul. Yeah, everything has a story to it. And so it's really important that you that you pick up and interact with so much and you get to touch it and twist it around and look at it. And, you know, and that's a huge, huge part of the game. And, and I love that too. And it, it really strengthens little moments. Like when you're cooking with your grandmother, you'll be, you know, you'll be physically putting the duck fat in the pan and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and maybe chopping a little bit the... too much duck fat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I crushed it. I did. I did great. Oh. Yeah. Oh, did you? Nice. I poured I cereal all over the table. Oh, I screwed that up. Yeah, I screwed up that part. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but the, the, the moment where you're cooking the potatoes, I crushed that. I imagine yeah, you could... Nice. That, that was funny because like there are a couple little moments like that to, to that point where like the game gives you a little bit of like wiggle room to to mess up if you want to. And I'm like, could I, I probably could have burned those potatoes by accident if I didn't like... Oh, I, I, I absolutely started to burn them and I was like, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. Move the pan, move the pan around, move I the pan. Love that I, and it's it's little <laughs> tiny stuff like that and the game even will give you um several like avenues of player choice in terms of like you know and my, my grandmother and i are planting you know a plant am i going to plant sage or thyme sage or, or thyme or you know, roses yeah yeah like and it's I did little roses. stuff I did, I did Sage personally, but like little stuff like that. And even like there's, there's a moment where you pick like a, like a mug and that mug like pops up in future. You notice that too? Yeah. Like, the, the, the little tea mug that you show up actually appears yeah. later on. Oh, that was such, I thought I was crazy. I was like, oh, that's an interesting coincidence. No, that's a thing, huh? It's, it seems to be a thing unless you and I pick the same mug, I guess. I don't, I don't remember which one it was, but it, I, 
I thought that was really cool. Like like a neat little touch and neat little detail. This game is full of like neat little details like that. And there will also be um and this this is like straight out of Boku no Natsuyasumi and those games like that, but there will be kind of collectibles scattered throughout, these little like glints on the ground that you pick yeah. up as as stickers. And it's one of the many ways that you can collect items for your scrapbook, which yeah. I, I love. love. The scrapbook is so good. Oh, oh, it, it reminds me, there's a game that came out um, on PS5 a year or two ago called Season A Letter to the Future that, that had a very similar mechanic. It doesn't go quite as far as Season did, but it's still such a great idea and it's implemented really well. I loved putting those pages together. I did too. Um, so what Seth's talking about and th- this whole idea of, of scrapbooking is uh, fairly soon... Uh, after the start of the game, you get access to this little binder, this little scrapbook. And throughout the course of the game, you can walk around and in an admittedly very video gamey kind of way, you'll uh, see these prompts, these little glints while you're walking around and you'll be able to collect, find and collect stickers that are hidden around the uh, around the environment. They don't immediately tell you what they're for, but I mean, it's a video game collectible. Go collect them. But in addition to that, uh, you'll be able to find uh, you'll be able to find words, and that is handled in several different ways. Actually, the words will appear as as uh, like conversation options. They'll mm. appear sometimes just within the world, like the actual physical world. Uh, the physical word for alone may appear as you're right. walking around your room as, you know, just a representation of how Mimi is feeling at that moment. The actual physical word may appear, but you can interact with that and collect words for inclusion in your scrapbook as well. You'll eventually get a, an admittedly really cool compact camera, uh, like a, a cool, like collapsible Polaroid camera that you can use to take pictures with. And you'll eventually get the ability to record sounds. Mm-hmm. So you'll get this whole like multimedia suite of ways to collect, like literally collect the world around you in, you know, in visual form, in audio form, in sticker form, even. And at the end of each cycle, before Mimi goes back to being, you know, before the time loop goes back and you take control of adult Mimi again, at the end of the day, as kind of a look back on everything you've done, the game has you kind of scrapbook that day. It takes everything that you've collected and you can create, you can actually take everything you've created and customize these wonderful little scrapbook pages together. And I won't, I don't want to say too much about uh, how that's done because it's, just seeing how it's done was a really cool, uh, I want to say like, it's not a big like spoiler uh, reveal or anything, but just seeing how you can do it and seeing how the words specifically are implemented. Uh, Yes. Was a really great touch. You know what I'm saying, Seth? Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. We shouldn't, it's a cool, it's a really cool implementation. We shouldn't spoil it. Um, It's, it's great though. Like it's, it's great that they have turned like, each of these things that, to your point, would normally just be like, yeah, it's a video game collectible. Go forth and collect. Box, box to check. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like you you actually want to because then you have more options for your scrapbook pages and you can, you know, really kind of encapsulate 
what that day meant to you. And yeah, the, the way the words are implemented is a really good summation of that too. And it encourages, you know, repeat playthroughs and it encourages it the, the ability to go back and go down pathways and select options and words that you didn't go, uh, go and choose on your first time through. And I, I love that too. I, uh, you know, even though the game is a short experience, like it's, it's the kind of thing where, you might feel encouraged to go back and and re-experience this story to uh, to sort of collect the different stuff and uh, and see the way that it engages with the scrapbook. It's great. I like. I love that element of the game. Now that is not to say that there are wildly divergent narrative paths no. that you can take in the game, but you know, just you know, especially if you have words that are separate conversation options obviously you can only pick one so it, you know it, it was interesting to me to like how would the interaction go had i chosen that and how could i have potentially used that other word in the scrapbook mm-hmm. so 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 there is that element to it you can see you can see exactly how many sounds and stickers and and stuff that you can collect during each of the the different days and each of the different chapters uh you can take uh, I, I think nine or 10 different photos each day. So yeah, I mean, you can't throw them all onto a single page, but, right. but, but just making that scrapbook, I thought was a really good, a really good way to represent kind of a summary of everything that you had done since the last time you mm-hmm. created a page. Essentially it's, the way a video game boss is supposed to be a test of everything that you've learned since the last one. Hopefully you've gotten a new skill or you've learned something new about the mechanics of the game. A video game boss is there to kind of test you on that. This kind of feels like the anti-video game boss where everything Mm -hmm. you've done since the last one you are able to implement, but in a much different and refreshing and cozy and wonderfully adorable way. Yeah, it's it's beautiful, man. And and there's also, you know, we, we've talked about the stickers and the words and everything. Um, you can also find cassettes. Uh, yeah. Cassette tapes. Oh, I love it, dude. <laughs> they're, yeah. And they're so good. It, it's kind of like, it's, it's interesting because like we're, we're, we're able to pluck these inspirations from other things. And another game that this reminded me of with, with these effectively audio logs was gone home. You know, like it kind of gives me a little bit of that too. And they're really good and give like a lot of great texture to the, the backstories primarily of, uh, your grandmother and your grandfather who had already passed away even before Mimi had spent that summer with her as a child. So you get to learn more about something I related to because I never met my grandfathers either. So Mimi and I, yeah, Mimi and I had that, but, but yeah, the, the tapes are another really good. Uh, uh, another really good representation of just how human these characters feel. These characters Mm. are not just, uh, they're not just personality traits with a character skin. These really feel like they were based on, like um, the story feels incredibly autobiographical for one or more of the developers. That's all I'm saying. It was sure. Yeah, they're, it's not like they're they're not black and white. Like the the grandmother is not like this altruistic, you know, angel of a person, you know, and and like the relationships that these people have, like they're real people. They feel real. I mean, these people 
fight and and you know they they love and they and they can argue too and you know it feels very very real and very very human i love that about it there was um a, a theme that this game tackles that i absolutely love and and this this was really meaningful and this is a way that i really related to the game was like this theming of like freedom and independence as a kid which i think that for me, for sure, when I was a kid, I was like, I have no control over what's going on in my life. So like mm-hmm. this, this theming of like exploration and like wonderment that is in this entire thing and just learning how to be your own person. Um, this game handles that like really elegantly. And I think it's like one of the best commentaries on being a kid that I think I've ever seen in a video game. Just that, that those like formative childhood summers that made you ultimately who you are you know and um yeah that that was just really special to me as somebody who spent a lot of my summers with my grandparents and you know it uh yeah that that stuff really touched me this game uh has moments in it and themes in it that are going to stick with me for a really long time i'll also say you know not to spoil anything that happens in the story but the -hmm. game doesn't just stay at the small scale that it is for most of it. The game does, it it goes a little step further than I expected it to in a way that really pleasantly surprised me actually. And, um, and I love the way the game ends. Like I love like that whole final sequence. Like it's just one of those things, man. Like it's just, I'm going to be thinking about this thing for a long time, you know? Uh, and just quick note, I don't know whoever started this trend of recording original songs for the credits of indie games, yeah. but keep keep doing that in development. I, I keep <laughs> doing good. that. I, I really like that. The music in general is really good, actually. So it is. Yeah, yeah. not a lot of punk rock in here. Go figure. <laughs> uh, but you know, I can still say it was pretty good, despite no, but no the 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 music and the sound design. Uh, the sound design specifically, uh, when the game really wants you to pay attention to the sound design, it's very obvious because mm-hmm. the sound design will ramp up noticeably. So when that happens, uh, it's like, oh, I got to pay attention to something. You know, this is the audio going around. Yeah, uh, but there's uh, also voice acting in the game. Yeah, which and the voices are incredible. See, yeah, it's. The, the voice acting is really good. And, you know, we've talked about the watercolors, but I also really like the character models. I can yeah. 1000% see this being adapted into, uh, into, you know, some like indie animated film or something. Totally. It's the, the character models have a little bit of like a Ghibli influence to them. Yeah, they, they really do. Yeah. I absolutely saw that. They feel like Studio Ghibli meets. Oh my god, this is going to be a deep cut for so many people. Like that the the French animation of the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. like uh The Sun Beneath the Sea and The yep. Mysterious Cities of Gold and uh like that if you know what I'm talking about, you and I can probably be friends because I know those are deep cuts for many people, but it feels like a mix between that and Studio Ghibli for me. Yeah. No, it's it's beautiful. It's a beautiful game, man. And you know, like and and you and I were talking about this too. Um the the only real like complaints that I have with it are very minor, like polished things, like extraordinarily nitpicky. Like if, if the team had another like six months to really nail down that animation, you know, or, or this, that, or the other thing, then, then it would have been really seamless. But for the most part, man, like, 
I just had such a great time with this. And I'm, I'm really like honored that this is the kind of game that we get to spotlight and cover in this way on our show, because I feel like I'm already seeing a lot of people like sleep on this game. And this is going to be a game that we keep talking about at the Golden Aces this year. It is. It really is. Seth and I have already talked about that. We're already. Yeah. Uh, in terms of criticisms, yeah, I can't really say too much more aside from Seth. There are a couple things, like I said, you know, polish based, uh, like, you know, when you try to interact with window blinds, Mimi's walk animation, like she still walks into the window for an extra two seconds, you know, just little stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, I almost like can't even say anything against the game during some of the during some of the sequences where young Mimi has to grab onto stuff. I will say unequivocally, this game has the most intense toothbrushing scene I've ever played. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, there's some small things. If I was going to say, if I was going to say I had an actual complaint, I would say that there are relationships and things established about adult Mimi's present life Mm-hmm. that are intentionally introduced but never done anything with there's no even remote attempt to pay off some of the things that are introduced in her in her modern life and uh, i don't know if there was an intent to i don't know if i don't know but there's a part of me that just almost wants to say that was done intentionally as a way to show, and I may be thinking about this too hard. I may be looking into it too hard. I may be giving the developers too much credit, but there's a part of me that just wants to say that it was done intentionally to show that, you know, not everything will end up as a perfect tied off bow at the end of the day. Not everything is going to be comfortably paid off. Not everything is going to end the way you want it. Because, you know, owing to these being real family relationships, the, you know, they're, they are real in an uncomfortable kind of way. Like there's not always reconciliation. There's not always forgiveness, even before passing. There's mm-hmm. not always closure. Yep. So. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, I can, I'm right there with you. That was my exact read on it. And I I think that it was to illustrate that. Mimi has chosen, and we're speaking vaguely, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. Mimi has chosen to get closure on one thing and chosen that over something else, right? And in fact, over a lot of other things. Like, there there are a lot of other things that, yeah, you're not going to see a nice pretty bow wrapped up on the top of, but that just stresses how important it was for Mimi to tug this string and figure out what was going on here, you know, and everything else gets backburnered so that she can figure this out, you know? And, um, and yeah, that, that was also a powerful theme that I, that I was left with as well. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's great, man. It's, it's really, really good. And the thing about this game too, it's, it's out on basically everything. It runs great on switch. Um, they even had, uh, we, we played it, uh, pre patch, but there was a day one patch that actually improved things like the load times and stuff too. Um, so it, it actually runs even better now than, than when we initially played it. But, um, it's also on, uh, on game pass. So if you have game pass, you can play the game just included with game pass. So even still. $14.99, I think, is a fair price for the game. It might even be on a launch window discount still. 
So, I mean, yeah, it's it's really good. I like it a lot. Yeah, I just hope as many people <laughs> as possible get to experience this. It's not it it is a game that you can finish in one sitting. Yes. Um and I think that's to the game's benefit. Uh but yeah, I the, the, this is one of those games. This is not a game you play to uh this you know, this is very much like the anti-Starfield. This is you know, a, a, a game you play when you want to feel something. This is a game you play when you want, uh, when you want to have your soul warmed, essentially. Mm. And I've got to say, just, just walking through this game, and this is something I told you, I'm going to go ahead and echo it here. Just the simple act of kayaking down a river yep. in this game was genuinely one of the most beautiful sequences I've seen on the Nintendo Switch um, it, it, it has a ton of heart that is evident in absolutely every frame of this game. And if I had to guess, it feels like making this game was maybe a little bit of closure and maybe a little bit of tying off that bow for one or more of the people at the studio. So I hope that feels the case. like it. Yeah, it certainly feels like it. There's there's so much humanity in this game. It is. I, I was double checking as you were saying that it's 19.99. It's no longer on sale uh, for the launch window discount, but still, you know, uh, 20 bucks. Like I said, about five hours on an initial playthrough. There is reason and incentive. You're gonna want to re-experience this game. Maybe not like immediate back-to-back playthroughs, but this is the kind of, it's like a good story. Like you could, I could see myself playing this thing once a year or something, you know? Um, it's, it's great. It's great. Everybody should go play Dordogne. <laughs> yeah. And if you have, let us know, reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter, join our amazing discord. We have a dedicated indie chat channel in our mm-hmm. discord. You, you, I mean, you guys know by now we are big on our indies. So if you've checked out the game, talk about it with us in there. We've even got a spoiler zone. If you've also gotten to the end of the game and seen that sequence, so we'd love to talk more about Dordogne with you. Join us. But, uh, you know, this game just released a couple days ago. It's been an insane June already, not just with releases, but with a ton of announcements as well. And one that we certainly weren't expecting was a mm-hmm. brand new rebooted Prince of Persia game that looks Absolutely stunning. Seth and I can't wait for it. But it certainly hasn't been the first time that the Prince of Persia series was rebooted too much excitement, is it, my friend? That That is absolutely true. Um, you know, we, we stand here in 2023, the 20th anniversary year of the Prince of Persia, the Sands of Time. Um, how about the- that? Yeah, how how about that? And, you know, the game released in November uh, of 2003 uh, on GameCube, but, like, all things considered, man, we're here. We're thinking about Prince of Persia so much. We're even, like, talking about Dordogne and going back into your past. It seemed like the perfect week to do the all-in retrospective treatment to Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, released on the Nintendo GameCube on November 18th, 2003, although 
first released on the Game Boy Advance uh, October 28, <laughs> 2003. Weirdly. Yes, oft-forgot fact about the Sands of Time, it technically premiered on the Game Boy Advance. Yeah. How's that for revisionist history? Very, very strange. And uh, in fact, the GameCube version of the game is kind of the definitive version of the game in many ways, not only because it and the Xbox uh, version had a documentary about the game, but also, fun fact, if you connect the GameCube and the GBA versions, you get a port of the original Prince of Persia from like the 80s. Uh, yeah. With apparently an ability for the prince to automatically regenerate health. So the GameCube, low-key, the definitive way to play Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, a now uh, nearly 20-year-old game that has, you know, uh, been lauded as one of the greatest games of all time and certainly laid the groundwork for an entire genre, honestly, and and games today uh, still very clearly influenced by this game. Yeah, and I mean, it's really easy to say stuff like that. It's really uh, easy to say buzzwords about influence and about long-reaching effects. But it's like, no, seriously, if you played Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, when it came out, and how it really revolutionized a couple different key elements about uh, adventure game game design, uh, you can still see hints of that. You can still see the DNA of the Sands of Time in a lot of cinematic adventure games that we get today. I mean, you really can. That's not just hyperbole. That's not just us saying stuff to make our retrospective sound cool. It's 100% true. And one of the reasons that the game is still regarded as one of the greatest of all time. Can I believe that it's 20 years old already? I still very very much remember playing this game when it first came out no, no. Uh, i didn't get to i didn't get to play the feature rich gamecube version at first unfortunately <laughs> but the fact that the gamecube version had a hidden port of the original uh i think speaks to how faithful the ubisoft team really wanted to make this game. Obviously they wanted to bring Prince of Persia to a new generation, but they Ubisoft had purchased the, the license and the catalog for Prince of Persia two years prior in 2001. Uh, but it was, it was pretty clear that they still wanted to make this a Prince of Persia game. They wanted to keep that lineage going. They didn't want to just use an established IP. And there were a couple big things that they did to really kind of sell that. Yeah. Well, they they first needed to get in touch with the series creator, Jordan Mechner, who um, was the creator of the original 1989 Prince of Persia long before Ubisoft ever got involved with with the IP. And it's really funny because like, you, you go back and look at that game and its sequel, and those are very sort of like, that was the advent of kind of early ideas of Metroidvania, yeah. of like very kind of like detailed platforming control that, you know, by today's standards feels very clunky, of course. Of um, course. It was, there, there was a game that came out recently called Lunark that I talked about on the show that, that very yeah. much harkens back to, you Absolutely. know, to, to games like that. But um, but Jordan Mechner, you know, was a little bit disenfranchised with with Prince of Persia because this actually Sands of Time, not the first 3D Prince of Persia game. <laughs> there, there was an oft maligned Prince of Persia 3D, <laughs> actually just called 
Prince of Persia 3D. Although it was ported, wasn't it like ported to the Dreamcast as like Prince of Persia Arabian Nights or or some? I, I vaguely remember something about that. But yeah, game wasn't very good. So a couple years later, when Ubisoft bought the rights, they bought the catalog for Prince of Persia, and they're like, "Hey, Mr. Mechner, we're doing a new Prince of Persia game. Let's go!" And like, "No, I'm good, bro. Yeah, I'm good over here." Yeah, he he was kind of reticent at first because of Prince of Persia 3D. I I think for for his part, it's like I don't know if if Prince of Persia really works in 3D. Like I need to see some kind of proof of concept. And turned out that uh, Ubisoft Montreal, who was one you know the developer of the game, uh, was concurrently working on the first Splinter Cell. And they had this new Jade engine that was being developed for Beyond Good and Evil and, you know, Splinter Cells in development. So they made mock assets and artwork and things like that, showed that to Mechner. And he was like, oh, like, I, okay, I think you're onto something here. And, um, and got involved uh, officially and uh, wound up, you know, being lead designer on the game, wound up writing the story of the game and the dialogue and, uh, and got very, very involved with, you know, this, this incredible game, um, also developed, uh, under the creative leadership of Patrice de Soleil. I think that's how you pronounce his name, who would go on to be the sort of like, uh, the, the main person behind the Assassin's Creed franchise all the way up through brotherhood. Um, and there's a interesting story with, with him too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There is a very, very interesting story. So it turns out that another game that Patrice worked on, uh, wound up heavily influencing a very key aspect of the game design of Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. And that was uh, uh, that game that Patrice worked on was Donald Duck going quackers. <laughs> so you might not think that a Disney game would have much really to lend to this story, but it turns out that while making that game, Patrice really wanted specifically wanted the ability. If you'd made a mistake, just to be able to, to immediately go back to erase that mistake, as opposed to having to restart the level. And that just that one little simple idea wound up being the, the cornerstone really wound up being the foundation for you know, the entire time manipulation mechanic that wound up making the Sands of Time such a phenomenon in addition to, you know, several other big key aspects of the game. But it just, like, it's so, I love this industry so, so much because you so often see absolutely bizarre, like, points of connection like that. Somebody taking their experience on a Disney licensed game for the previous gen (laughs) and using the fundamental lessons learned there to help craft one of the greatest games of all time. And, you know, that, that itself is just a really interesting story within the creation of this game. But I do think that a large part of this game's success can be boiled down to how much care that Ubisoft wanted to take with it as a Prince of Persia title. It says volumes to me. It says absolute volumes to me that not only did they go to the game, to the, to the franchise's creator and ask him to be a part of their new reboot, 
when they absolutely didn't have to. Ubisoft has proven that they have many, many talented people that work for their company and have worked for their company for decades. But they wanted to, to honor the franchise. And even though he initially said no, they went through, created the assets, and actually went back to him. They didn't have to go to him the first time. And after he turned him down, they could have just said, okay, well, we tried. Let's move forward. No, they specifically wanted him. They specifically wanted to make something that he would bless off on, that he would be proud of. Uh, so they created it and they they put so much work and time and effort and heart into this. They wound up bringing the creator of the franchise around and he became an integral part of the creation of this game years after he initially created the franchise. And just that little story, all the, the fun little anecdotes about the game that are, I mean, admittedly super interesting and are going to make for great trivia probably come this October. Uh, uh, take note, Seth. But <laughs> but yeah, that, that cornerstone, that backbone story of the original creator and Ubisoft, you know, going out of their way to prove to him that they were the right people to take on this Herculean task of bringing this legendary IP to a new generation. Yeah, I I love, and you really can feel his touch on this game. It really, one one of the things that I really like about not only the original Prince of Persia games, but, but this one too, is that like he brings such a personal like element, like the game does feel lovingly crafted like it like you yeah. can actually feel the touch of the people who made it even though it is like this big pretty bombastic like triple a scale video game for the time um it still feels lovingly made i mean when you talk about the original prince of persia like that's rotoscope by samples of him like recording his brother in his pajamas running around you know and like, literally you, yeah, like and and you feel that. Like like it feels like very human and that's why it it feels so naturalistic and same here. Like little elements of this game even still today. I was I was playing this, you know, uh just like kind of in preparation for this. Picked up the game on Steam. It is still available on Steam. Not only was it available, but it was on sale for like a dollar 99. And um I started playing through it and the next thing you know, 4 hours went by. And I'm like, my God, like this just feels like you can, you can actually feel the personal touch and little things like when researching about the game's development and design influences, how the team like all sat down together and played through eco together. Yeah. Like, that feels true. Like I, I love reading things like that to your point, like reading about how these little connective tissues and in the 20 years since the team has been able to look back on the game and kind of like talk openly about things like this and influences and how the the development of the game went. And um, it really just adds so much, I think to, to the product. Like it really does feel like uh, like a piece of art, you know, it's, and it's still 20 years later holds up quite well. Yeah. And you know, Prince of Persia, you know, classic IP, but this was not something to where everybody was like, oh my God, we need another Prince of Persia game. This was not right. Mario. This was not Zelda. This wasn't a, uh, uh, this wasn't a marquee name necessarily. Definitely an important part of video games past, but in 2003, you know, Ubisoft wasn't making a Prince of Persia game because they knew it would sell. Um, 
So they still actually had to put together a good game mm-hmm. beneath the IP. And just, I mean, the design influence, we talked about the, the Donald Duck influence. <laughs> but yeah, just that idea. And, you know, we'll, we'll stick on the, the, the time manipulation thing here because so many people have tried to incorporate time manipulation into their games because it is such an interesting idea. You've got stuff like, you know, Quantum Break and Singular and Blinks and, you know, all of these games over the Blinks. past couple of decades. <laughs> That's hey, a man, good I like, call out. <laughs> I, I do like Blinks. I still really like Blinks. I liked, I liked the first one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you want a deep cut. I can bring I can break out Kronos Twins on DSiWare again there if you, you want. <laughs> uh, but a lot of games have attempted to incorporate some type of time manipulation in there. And I mean, I would argue few of them have even measured up to how elegantly uh, Sands of Time did it because they incorporated into so, so much of the game. You got so many different abilities and you got the opportunity to use them pretty frequently, uh, both in combat and very crucially around a lot of the different environment to solve puzzles and even to traverse. There was a ton of mileage that they got out of this time manipulation mechanic and you know, in the early 2000s, we really finally had the technology to do something like that justice. And Ubisoft went all in with it, which we certainly appreciate. There was the ability. And I, I mean, how many games that you play now can you still activate a character ability after you've died? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and it also that was like so cool. Just, the, just that ability is like, oh, I fall into my death. Oh, well, not. Because yeah. that was the thing we said back in the early 2000s was not. And you just hit the trigger and all of a sudden you're alive again. And that that kind of like reality sucking sound that <sighs> comes in and all of a sudden you're back up on that was oh, it's So it's as cool today as it ever was. Yeah. Well, and it also feeds into the theme of the game because like the prince is telling a story. And like, literally like you, you'll die. And, eh, no, no, no. That's not how that went. You know? And then you'll like, <laughs> re, I forgot you know, about that. Yeah. Yeah. You'll, you'll rewind time and everything. And like, it, it just, you know, it, it totally makes sense. And it really struck me even playing this now in 2023, again, almost 20 years on, um, how many things from this game, like this, this really feels like the perfect representation of that original 1989 Prince of Persia game in 3d. Like, Yes, there's combat and and they even incorporate these mechanics into combat, but like this is a game where like it is about the traversal. Like it is about just navigating the world around you. It is about solving problems of like how do I get from this side of the room to the other? And there aren't really many games like that, man. Like we've seen these kind of mechanics incorporated, you know, some of the games that are influenced by this certainly are things like Uncharted obviously come to mind, you know, like any, any, you know, Horizon, any game essentially where you grab onto a ledge, Assassin's Creed certainly, you know, and, and climb around was influenced by this. It was sort of like an unprecedented level of interaction in a 3D space for the purpose of traversal. And by that measure, like there really still isn't anything quite like it today. Yeah, it they were effectively traversal puzzles. Uh mm-hmm. traversal had never been handled at that level before. Uh the the way you got from place to place in Prince of Persia Sands of Time was 
just in a word special. We had been, I mean, we'd seen what platformers can do. We had seen dozens of them over the previous 15 years. Mario, Super Mario Brothers, of course, had popularized the genre and everybody and their dog had come out with their own mascot by the year 2000. And we had seen enough platformers to last us our entire lives. Ubisoft said, you know, this whole going from left to right thing, or even in the the era of 3D, you know, going from the foreground to the background, jumping. We've seen that before. How can we make it more interesting? How can we make it more intuitive? How can we make it more dynamic than just moving from one flat surface, elevating yourself for a second or two to make it to another flat surface? And they just started looking at uh, all the other different implementations within environments, and they decided to take a much more acrobatic approach to it. So instead of just a normal jump, you know, everything that you saw, the pillars, the walls, you know, gates and column, everything could all of a sudden be be used. The Prince of Persia, uh, Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time certainly wasn't the first game to let you hold on to a ledge. But the way that it incorporated that into traversal, the way you could jump off of it, the way you could run across uh, walls or the way you could ping pong between different implements in the environment, just the traversal itself, it was really kind of the early implementation of, of this idea of parkour, to be honest. And uh, it, a lot of the games that we've already talked about, the Far Cries, the Tomb Raiders, the Uncharted's, the, uh, the Last of Us, like all of these cinematic action adventure games, you can still see those early ideas of traversal. You can still see the DNA of Prince of Persia, the Sands of Time, and the way the prince got around. A lot of the times, the puzzle, like Seth said, wouldn't even be moving boxes around to try to fit in, uh, you know, to try to fit him in the correct way. It wouldn't be trying to find a key. It wouldn't be anything like, it would actually be how do I use my traversal abilities to get from one place? It was a much more environmentally centric puzzle. And it made for, I mean, you said you lost four hours to it. Yeah, because you were constantly doing something new in that regard. You weren't stopping to, to think about things. Once you got an idea of what you needed to do, and that's another part of the genius is once you got a handle on the controls, it was like this dance you were you could perform you just saw the world in a different way it was no longer just an environment that you would wind up maybe jumping from one ledge to another or maybe fighting a couple enemies and you would look at the rooms you would look at the layout and you would just start looking at how you could maneuver off of different uh, elements within the environment to interact with each other it just completely changed your game vision and once you Ironically enough, this game was influenced quite a bit by The Matrix. So once you really started to talk this game's language, that's really the best way I could put it is it felt like you could see The Matrix in Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. You could just see the environment and know exactly what you had to do to get from point A to point B. And it just looked like this incredibly cinematic acrobatic dance. Oh yeah, the game's incredibly, extraordinarily cinematic. It uh, there there are a few elements of the game that like really still stick out to me. Like not only 
all that stuff that you've said is is totally true. Like the 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 actual puzzle of navigation, which is like the the meat of the game, but also the way that like all of those elements interplay, I think is really mm-hmm. impressive from a design perspective. Like you're you're doing the traversal and you will fail, you know, like they're going, you're going to fall and you're going to have to, you know, use your rewind ability, go back and try it again. That's a finite resource, right? So like that is governed by the sand in the dagger of time. And that's something that you can certainly upgrade and get more of, which is also like that capacity is increased by not only finding uh, points of like sand in the in the world, like in the palace that you're traversing, but also through the combat. One of the things like that happens, you get the dagger of time, and everybody basically in the entire palace, except for like you, Farah, and the vizier, uh, yeah. are turned into like sand zombies. And, um, and in the combat, like you, you take them out, but you have to finish them off with this like cinematic, like finishing move. And when you do that X amount of times, you can also increase the dagger's capacity. So like all of these little things are basically making your core verb of the game better in a way that is really smart. And, um, and I think that that like is even fed into little organic things that, that they do that, that feel like just very organic, like naturalistic design decisions. Things like the way you recover health in the game is you just find like water, like in the world, like either in fountains or like if you're, if you're like stepping in a pool of water or something, like you can just hit the, the game calls it the special button. Um, and just start drinking water and recovering health, which feels very like normal. You're not picking up like health orbs or like popping potions, like you're drinking some water and stay like, hydrated people. That's yeah, the key. That's the key yeah, lesson. That's, there. that's a big takeaway. And, and also um, like the, the save points of the game, once you reach a save point, it actually gives you uh, the principal have like a vision um, that like gives you like little flashes of the things you're going to be doing the in the next section. Area. Yep. yep. Yeah. And like, that's really smart because like, even if you are somebody who like, if you don't understand, like you were saying, like the sort of visual design language that the game has, if you look at a problem and you're like, well, how am I going to do this? The game's actually already showed it to you, you know? And that's just really smart. And you can even like go back to the save point and rewatch the vision. Like I, I was, I was so impressed, like going back to this, like how smartly designed the game was in ways that didn't really hit me when I was a kid playing this you know, 20 years ago and like, I'm playing it now much older and I'm like, wow, like, man, this game, it turns out good game. (laughs) Turns out good game. Yeah. I didn't get, I don't have steam. I didn't, uh, unfortunately there's no way to play it currently on the Nintendo switch. We're still having to wait for that remake, uh, which very famously went back to the drawing board. Yeah. But uh, you know, I was watching some videos of it and, you know, talking about the combat again. Yes, they absolutely wanted you to use uh, the prince's more cinematic finishers. And very often you were facing off against multiple of these sand zombies at once. And you were kind of having to ping pong between several at a time while also uh, while also, you know, evading attacks from from multiple sides. And I was looking at this and I was like, oh, my God, like. This is like this really feels like a nexus point for like the Arkham series combat for like Spider-Man's totally. combat yep. and a, a lot of those action adventure games that we laud now as some of the best ever made. 
And you, I was looking back at videos. I was like, oh my God, like this is, this is the infancy, a very well executed infancy of other games that would wind up even expanding on that to the nth degree. So from the traversal and the combat, this game, uh, like to say that it was pioneering and breaking barriers honestly is an understatement. This game was truly something to behold when it came out on the Game Boy Advance and then eventually on other systems. Well, yeah, yeah. Clearly Game Boy Advance <laughs> forward uh, game. I, but I, I do, do think one thing's interesting about the Game Boy Advance, and I didn't know this until you told me, Seth, but mm-hmm. uh, obviously the Prince and Pharaoh make up the big character dynamic throughout the course of the Sands of Time, and they're you know, clearly romantic, you know, their clear romantic tension makes up a lot of the interplay, but you only play as the prince in the Sands of Time. I didn't know this. You can actually play as Farah in the Game Boy Advance version of the game. I think yeah. that's interesting. I think that's a fun fact. Yeah, I, I actually kind of want to pick up a copy of the GBA version too. and play it because, um, <laughs> yeah, you can, it, it adapts like a Castlevania 3 thing where you can swap between the prince and Farah like seamlessly uh, throughout the course of it. Like you can just pop over, play as her. She can actually, just like in this one, like in this one, she's got her bow and, um, and she's AI controlled, but, but in the end, the GBA version, you can just play as her. Pretty cool. Another thing, you know, just as we're talking about this very, very quickly, another thing, this game completely overhauls, uh, to a pioneering degree is a lot of the game is kind of technically an escort mission, but, Oh my God, it's the best kind of escort mission because you don't have to worry about the character you're escorting and they're actually helping you throughout the court. It was such yeah. a breath of fresh air when it came to the the type of escort missions. Like escort missions were essentially a four-letter word in the early 2000s. So having something like this was so refreshing. Yeah, she she can still die um, and that will fail like the, the, the section or whatever, but... Um, she's, she's not dumb. Like she actually is, is holding her own. She's also like, it's the right balance though, too, because in the sections where far is helping you in combat, like she, she's good enough to be helpful and not get herself killed most of the time. Um, but she also like feels she's not going to solo everybody. No, like she's not just landing like headshots with her bow and arrow left and right, you know, or anything like that either. So, and and I also another thing that that I really love too is like the the game this is something that I'd kind of forgotten about until revisiting it, but like the game has way more like off the beaten path stuff than I even remembered or appreciated. Like not only do you have the little like sand clouds that that you get the uh, the extra dagger capacity from but like you get more health through these weird like totally like you you have to go like way out of your way to places that like don't even look like you should be able to go there and you enter this weird like vision realm and like get mm-hmm. more health that way and i was like man like this is really cool like you feel like you're kind of like breaking the game a little bit but the game like rewards you for doing things with the exploration that you feel like you shouldn't be able to do and uh and that's also really smart like not only did they intend for you to do that broken looking thing but they reward you for it and um like that to me like there again there's certain things about this that i'm like this holds up beautifully well and it's a shame that the development of the the remake remaster whatever has been so troubled because this game deserves that kind of treatment 
Like it does. This game deserves to come out and be the Metroid Prime remastered and have everybody realize, you know, all this time later how good it's always been. Get the ninety plus open critic score and all the rest. Um, I'd love to see that. Yeah, me too, man. I, I'm really, I'm really hopeful. Uh, especially now that we've like got this upcoming Prince of Persia game that looks amazing and we're both really mm-hmm. excited for it. Like, oh, yeah. I'm so like, I'm like really into the idea of having this game on modern consoles again, uh, because like it's, it's still like worth playing today. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. Uh, and, and I also like, it was funny. You're talking about like the ping ponging around with the, the combat and like how cinematic it is. Another thing that, uh, that I had forgotten about this was you can even like, there's a dedicated button to just changing the camera angle, um, which is also helpful. You can actually like hit, I'm playing on PC, so I'm using an Xbox controller, but you can hit like left trigger and it will like shift the camera to almost look like a side scroller if you want it to which is weird. And I didn't even remember that you could do that, <laughs> but it's helpful. Like it can be really helpful sometimes. So yeah, really, really smart and impressive the way that stuff works. Like they kind of thought of everything. Yeah. And another thing, obviously a lot gets made of the time mechanic and the traversal and you know the combat, but like, honestly, there's a lot of voice acting in this game oh, yeah. and the performances are handled incredibly well too. The, the bickering and the interplay between Fair and the prince is really fun and entertaining throughout. As you mentioned, the prince narrates uh, a large part of the adventure in a fun kind of Arabian Nights kind of way. And as a matter of fact, you know, in addition to playing Eco, another one of the things the developers did, the developers actually read A Thousand and One Nights yeah, that makes uh, sense. as part of their uh, research for this. And we compare, I compared this game to Spider-Man a couple minutes ago. Guess who plays the prince? <laughs> yep. Yep. Yuri Lowenthal plays the prince in this game. And uh, according to, to Seth, the audio from his vocal performance has held up quite nicely over the past two decades. <laughs> well, it's it's funny that the PC version of the game, you know, there, there are like some weird like workarounds and patches you have to apply to it to get it to, you know, look nice and, and all that. But once you do that, uh, you're actually able to play the game like at full scaled, like, you know, 1080p resolution and stuff. Um, and the PC version has something built in that isn't available on the other versions of the game where there are some advanced like HD audio features. And yeah, Yuri Lowenthal's performance like still sounds really good, like by modern scrutiny as somebody who is like amateur audio engineer and edits audio literally every day. Um, mm-hmm. like it's, it's something that, you know, I think the untrained ear wouldn't even be able to tell that he didn't just record that yesterday, you know? Um, so that, that was really impressive to me too. He also sort of like with this role, I think kind of, I I think it's not, you know, out of line to say he maybe like kind of pioneered that kind of brash, like Nathan Drake sort of persona in video games. I can't really think of an earlier voice acted example of that kind of character in video games. Mm, I mean, Laura Croft does kind of fit that, but like there was precious little voice acting in those games. Right. Um, but I mean, yeah, uh, I can yeah. definitely see that. And when it comes to, you know, very brash type of anti-hero characters as, you know, as influential as this game is, you really would have thought that somebody in the intervening years would have made a video game 
based on an ancient civilization where you play as a mythical character, a brash anti-hero who traverses an ancient realm wielding a mystical blade in combat in a cinematic action adventure game aided by a smarmy character wielding a bow and arrow. Right. Yeah. You would think somebody would have made a game like that and that that game might have also done very, very well for a little studio like Sony Santa Monica. Yeah, you would think. You would think. Yeah, it's 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 really cool, man. It's and it's again still still holds up really well. I'll say too, like my uh, my first experience with this game, ironically enough, um, was with the GameCube version, and mm-hmm. I got it from GameStop for like I played it after it had already come out. I I think I had heard like maybe I saw like the X Play review or something like that, but I had heard like good things about it. And I remember getting it from uh from from GameStop for like very cheap. Like I, I it was like absurdly cheap. I used to just go into there and just like look through like the the bargain bin, like look through like the ten five dollar games or whatever. And yeah. um and and like I remember picking this one up, you know, back then and uh, like so, it's been like a nostalgic experience to go back to because it reminds me of like you know those old times too. So. Well, yeah. apparently it didn't, like, it wasn't a, a monumental seller when it came out. Again, the Prince right. of Persia name alone wasn't going to sell copies. And it took, apparently it took sustained critical reverence to get those sales numbers up. And it certainly did eventually get those sales numbers up. Uh, it wound up selling in excess of, I think, uh, I think to date it sold in excess of 14, 15 million copies. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, over. Like it's it's this is not a game that came out and sold a million copies in its first weekend. It was a little slow going there for a while, but it eventually sold enough that uh, they wound up releasing Warrior within the following year, and then of course uh, Two Thrones to finish the trilogy. So yeah, yeah, and they're and they're fine. Like I I liked those games, but like you can tell they're they're very different. Like they they are. They were made in a post God of War God smack listening world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, the so. art direction between Sands of Time and Warrior Within alone it will give you whiplash. Yeah, um, he had to be cool. He had to be like an edge lord. You know. Yeah. So there had to be fine. no question he was an antihero now. Right. Like in this one, he's kind of like it, that kind of a like my, ga- my game's even going to have game breaking bugs too, because that's the cool. Sorry. I'm just a little salty from an old news. I'll tell you that story sometime. <laughs> I'll tell you that story sometime if you meet me in public. But, um, but I mean, ultimately, yeah, just because of that, like the, the following two games were still good. They weren't as revolutionary or as, you know, they, they weren't straight tens across the board. Uh, but ultimately, the Sands of Time and the Sands of Time trilogy is still a very well-remembered, very beloved part of video game history. And that first game, as we've already established, can be seen as a nexus point for a lot of what we see in modern action-adventure games. Yeah. Well, and it's also, too, another thing that, I, that I'm, I've been thinking about as we've been preparing for the retrospective and playing it. Like, look at what, look at what this game represented for that period of Ubisoft's life, too. Like mm-hmm. where they made this concurrently with like Splinter Cell and Beyond Good and Evil. Beyond and Good like, and Evil, yep, yep. Like yep. these these games that were really like I it's crazy to think about how 
just creative, like how, how much creative freedom they had at that point. And like, I mean, to your point, like it was not a foregone conclusion that like, yeah, let's make a 3d Prince of Persia game. Let's bring back this, you know, kind of like obscure, like 1989 franchise that the last entry like did terrible. Yeah. Let's go ahead and bring that back. That'll print money. You know, like that, that wasn't the obvious conclusion. So for them to not only bring that back to get Jordan Mechner involved again, for it to come out and totally like revolutionize the industry in so many ways and influence, you know, so many developers, you know, the influence that is still being felt today, in addition to creating franchises like Splinter Cell and Beyond Good and Evil that were equally great. I mean, like this was a golden age for Ubisoft, man. Oops, all bangers. Yeah, oops, all bangers here, man. So I don't know. It just <laughs> represents a special time, not only in gaming for me, but like in, in Ubisoft history. And again, that remake, dude, like I I want nothing but the best for that remake. It, this game I really needs do it. too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this uh the the Prince of Persia IP at this point is almost synonymous with reboots and remakes. Of course, after that trilogy, they would go on to attempt another reboot on the PS3 and Xbox 360, which while it didn't get its own trilogy is still fairly fondly remembered by those that played it. About to say, I know you really enjoyed it. I Um, liked it a lot. And it's, it's funny because like I would, I would say that this version of the Prince with Yuri Lowenthal was kind of like, inspiring to the, you know, sort of Nathan Drake, you know, kind of, again, that cocky, you know, sort of character. And it's really funny that Nolan North voiced the prince in that game, (laughs) you know, and it very much kind of feels like a post uncharted, you know, Prince of Persia game. So, yeah, he always struck me as like a a mix between someone like Nathan Drake and Dante and yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he's got that, you know, he, he definitely in, in this first one, he definitely has that kind of Aladdin vibe. Like if Aladdin aged, you know, oh, 10 absolutely. years, you and know, got a soul patch and yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then also another thing too, um, I commented on like that sort of like edgelord tone of the, the following two games. But like one thing that was cool about this one too, was um, uh, the, the music of it is interesting because obviously it has a lot of like, you know, Arabic influence and instruments and things like that. But there is like still the tinge of like, that kind of like new metal, like rock influence in there. And mm-hmm. one thing that I notated playing it uh, here in the modern age is like, I like how raw the the soundtrack is. Apparently they had this guy that the composer of the, the game is from like a Canadian rock band. Um, his name's Stuart Chatwood uh, from a Canadian rock band called the Tea Party. I'm not familiar with them. But like he was the composer. You're not familiar with the Tea Party. Come on. No, no, I don't know the Tea Party. Sorry, I've been Um, to other shows. Yeah, yeah, not familiar. He did. He did the music (laughs) for all of them. He uh, he wound up doing the music for Darkest Dungeon apparently as well. I didn't know that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that was kind of interesting. But it's really like raw. Like it's kind of interesting how like you'll go to um you'll you'll do like a combat sequence. And the music will stop, but you'll kind of hear like the fingers slide at the end of the guitar still. Like I liked how kind of like personal, even the music feels. It doesn't feel like a, like a super high produced, you know, very clean cut, you know, sort of soundtrack. So again, there's just like human fingerprints all over this game, which is really refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. but honestly, at this point, you don't need us to tell you any more about how revolutionary or influential about how great <laughs> this game is. Uh, it's where I'm still looking forward to 
Uh, I'm uh, even more now after the reveal of Prince of Persia Lost Crown. I'm admittedly even more looking forward to the the remake. I still hope that winds up coming at a later date. But honestly, if you want to play it on a Nintendo platform, I hope you have a GameCube. Uh, other than that, like Seth said, you can pick it up on Steam. Uh, hopefully by the time this episode goes live, Ubisoft Forward Sale is still going on. Uh, Seth was able to pick it up for just $1.99, and that is, suffice it to say, a pretty good price to pick up one of the greatest games ever made. Yeah, yeah, you can get the whole, like, you can get this trilogy and uh, the 2008 game for like 20 bucks on Steam at the time we're recording this. Like I said, I don't know if that's still going to be going on by the time the episode goes live, but a uh, pretty, pretty good deal. And um, it's a, it's a nice, you know, kind of easy way to get to play the original game. Like I said, you got to do a couple little weird workarounds, but they're easy enough to do. If I can figure it out, so can you. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and, and yeah, like that, that's, you know, the, this game I'm, I'm hopeful and um, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for, for that reboot, that remake, whatever it's going to be. And, um, you know, it'll be a full circle moment for us too, because we've been talking about that reboot since literally the beginning of all in. So yeah, yeah. hopefully here's hoping, man, but let us know what your favorite, uh, moments in the Prince Persia franchise are. Let us know what your favorite games. Do you love the old rotoscope? original Prince of Persia games more so than the new stuff. Do you actually enjoy Prince of Persia 3D? Let us know how crazy you are. Reach out to us on Facebook at All In Podcast, on Twitter at All In Podcast. Join the conversation over in our phenomenal Discord. Let us know all of your favorite Prince of Persia everything. We would love to have you also make sure to give a like and subscribe to us over at youtube.com slash all in podcast, where of course, every Friday night, we break down the week in Nintendo news. And if you haven't checked it out already, you absolutely want to check out this past week's news breakdown. There was a lot to go over a ton Mm. of content that we keep producing day in and day out for all of you guys. And somehow Seth, in between all of that, we're still able to make exclusive content for our patrons. We do. We do make a ton of exclusive content for patreon.com slash all in podcast. A bunch of friends and supporters who support us over there, helping the dreams come true, throwing a couple bones our way for our hard Mm -hmm. work. We really appreciate y'all. You can get a seven day free trial to the golden banana tier and get access to all in side quest, which is our non Tendo podcast that we do every week. We've been breaking down, Everything else Mm. outside of the world of Nintendo that's been happening with Summer Game Fest and Ubisoft Forward and Capcom Showcase and Xbox. This this last episode was actually our longest side quest yet. Yeah, it was was like a two-hour breakdown. Uh, I mean, between both of those episodes, there's, there's like three and a half hours of just breaking down and chatting about games uh, on SideQuest, uh, all the news that has come out of these uh, these past, you know, this past week or so. So very, very cool. We do that, um, you know, so that's at the Gold Banana tier. Triforce tier supporters also get access uh, to merch discounts, bit.ly slash all in merch. You can get yourself a, uh, a shirt, a mug, a sticker, and uh, throw a couple bones our way for our hard work. We really appreciate it. And uh, if you don't have any bones to throw away, that's okay too. You can drop us some words entirely for free. Leave us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and Audible. You can leave written reviews that I will shout out here on the show. And on Spotify, you can leave five-star ratings uh, anonymously, which is very, very appreciated. It helps our show grow, helps us climb the ranks of the Nintendo podcasts out there. And uh, yeah, we appreciate that very much. 
We absolutely appreciate it very much. We appreciate all of you amazing people out there very much. All of our patrons, all of the certified legends over there in the Patreon, to all of you awesome people who have dropped words on whatever podcast service you're listening to us on, and to anybody who has just shared our content, our podcast, our videos, all in somewhere across the internet, guys. We just want to send a massive thank you and just say namaste. Namaste. Another one down, dude. It's been a, yeah. it's been been a fun episode. Uh I'm I'm kind of like sitting here though wishing I had the dagger of time, wishing I could rewind, wishing I could get a little bit more time in my pocket to play more games. <laughs> I know we've got we've got a little bit of a lull coming up, I know, but uh but man, the second half of this year is going to be absolutely insane. But still, I mean regardless of that, we've still got a ton of stuff to look forward to we always in it just never stops we're all in folks it really doesn't no yeah we're and you know us too we're gonna find some kind of like goofy thing to talk about in the world of nintendo regardless of what happens we just we just have fun here every week and it's uh (laughs) it's a blast (laughs) <laughs> we do. I mean, uh, we're basically just counting down to everybody one two switch at this point. I think that's really the what's true going game on. of the year. Yeah, that's the that's what game. we're really waiting on. Just on on the thirtieth, forget Ghost Trick Phantom Detective. All right. I mean, clearly we got to pick up everybody <laughs> one two switch. <laughs> yeah. You all you, uh, you played the demo for Ghost Trick, haven't you all? I'm looking at you. Yes, I'm looking at you. You've played the Ghost Trick for Phantom. Better have or for for Ghost Trick. Okay, good. No, but yeah, uh, all stupidity aside, guys, uh, we've had so much fun this episode, as we do every episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with us, and we will see you back here next week for another brand new episode of All In. But until then, I have been Sub-Eric, Grandmaster of the Lin Kuei. And I have been Ace Attorney, Seth of Justice. We'll see you back here next week. We love you very much. Bye! Bye! Bye!